This week's episode of Creepscast is sponsored by HelloFresh. Go to HelloFresh.com slash MrCreep16 and use code MrCreep16 for up to 16 free meals and 3 free gifts. Hello everyone, I hope that you're all doing well. Spring is officially upon us and I'm sure like many of you, I'm welcoming the warm weather. With that, let's turn up the heat and dive into things as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. An entry from the Journal of an Artificial Human, written by Fallen Angel 41. My name is Lucy, and I'm 17 years old. Now, don't let the title of this journal fool you. I am in no way, shape, or form a robot, but rather... I am one of the first two humans born using synthetic DNA. In other words, I am one of the first humans who doesn't have biological parents. This sounds like the technological and scientific marvel of the century. Heck, it almost won two guys a Nobel Prize, but what I'm about to tell you is going to change everything. Like I said earlier, I'm only one of two humans made without parents. The other subject is a male, same age as mine. His name is Mark. Mark and I were synthesized using different proteins and chemical structures from various sources, which were then rearranged into a crude genetic structure. This took over five years to get just right, with various failures along the way. But eventually, they managed to create a viable DNA sequence and from there create variations of these sequence to act as chromosomes and such. After about two months of genetic tampering, these sequences were combined into a zygotic cell and placed in a controlled environment nearly identical to the conditions of a human uterus. Over the course of 11 months, the fetuses began to grow. On May 8, 2001, the first began to move on its own, and on July 14, 2004, the first child was successfully removed from the controlled environment. It was indiscernible from a regular human infant, born under regular conditions. The only difference was an extended pregnancy due to the nature of the conception. These scientists, from what I hear, reacted like they had just created the first nuclear weapon. They had worked five years trying to create a zygote from scratch and another 11 trying to incubate it, and their labor had finally paid off. Mark was the firstborn, I was the second. It only took about 15 months for me because by then, they had all the steps figured out from the first time. I was born on October 21st, 2005. Our early years were nothing eventful. We were named by the head researcher. Mark was named after the scientist's late son who died in a car crash just 8 days after his 19th birthday. I received the name Lucy because the scientist in question had always been fond of the Peanuts comics by Charles Schultz, and wanted to honor him by naming a scientific marvel after one of his characters. We led the lives of normal human children, except we had four scientists watching us instead of moms and dads. We were raised in two separate apartments with two scientists each looking after us. Another thing, our skin was pale white. Not a tan peach color like normal white skin, but actually white like paper. They would rotate positions once a month. 
Now that that's out of the way, let me begin by saying the rest of this story isn't for the faint of heart, or those who are triggered easily. The next set of journal entries takes place from June 2017 to November 2019. By this time, Mark and I had become very close friends, mostly due to our similar origins. He wasn't a brother, but more of a significant other, a soulmate. This sounds weird, I know, but there isn't a better way to describe our relationship. We genuinely loved and appreciated each other. We didn't know that at the time, as we were still very young. But we just couldn't stop thinking about each other. The scientists seemed to enjoy our little relationship. They found it adorable and heartwarming to see Mark and I bonding with each other. This, however, wasn't the case for every scientist. One scientist in particular, a woman in her 40s named Jacqueline, but Mark and I called her the Mosquito Woman because of how much she poked and prodded into our lives, despite our protest. She didn't approve of any of the decisions made by the scientists. She was very easy to anger and very opinionated about the experiment. We all thought she was just a jerk, but this ran deep and nobody knew it. On an uneventful evening in June of 2018, I was at his home. Like I said, we were raised right next door to each other in large, furnished apartments. It was getting late and I decided to tell my observers that I wanted to head home. We gave quick goodbyes and then parted ways for the night. Recently, we had been given phones to text each other with. However, every app except texting and calling was locked out. I texted Mark at about 10.30, telling him that I was bored to tears. He sent a message back, suggesting that we spy on our owners. Being the innocent little twins we were at the time, I agreed. I waited until 1am and then slowly crept out of my room and towards the room of Dr. Smith, my male observer. We were each given male and female observers to simulate parents, and I leaned against the door, pressing my ear up to it. Inside, I could hear him typing away at his laptop as usual. After a while, the constant clack 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 of keys on a keyboard got boring to me. I crept over to Dr. Lincoln's room. She was fast asleep, making a sound like an idling diesel truck. I softly giggled to myself and crept back to my room. I then texted Mark and asked of his progress. He didn't respond. Must have fallen asleep, I thought to myself. The next few nights came and went and then I went to see Mark again. He greeted me, although he was noticeably jittery. He seemed worried and I asked him about it, and he kept brushing it off. What really got my attention was normally when Miss Mosquito came out to check on him. He was noticeably a lot more nervous around her. I asked him and once again he ignored my questions. A few days later, a new scientist joined the research group. She was as kind and supportive as somebody could be. Her name was Dr. Miller, but she let me and Mark call her by her first name, Jane. Jane was a tall Korean woman about 32. She acted less like an observing scientist and more like a caring mother. She was fluent in English, albeit with a bit of an accent. As you could probably tell, I couldn't hold back my excitement when she was assigned to me as my female observer. I ran up and hugged her and she smiled and did the same. About a week later, Mark and I met up again. Mark was in rough shape now. There was a small discoloration on his left arm. Jane looked carefully at it, 
and he started sobbing before closing the door on us. I curiously texted him that night, and finally I learned what had happened to him. It had all started the night that we had spied on our caretakers. At the time, he had had the mosquito. He never expected that innocent game could go so awry. He had eavesdropped on his caretaker talking to another researcher, Dr. Smith, who we jokingly called the Wasp, for the same reason as the mosquito. What he heard that night shook his whole world. I don't know how much longer I can take watching him. Calm down, Jackie. Calm down. They're telling me to watch an abomination that they cooked up in a lab. If they want to study it, just put it in a cage. You and I both know that's not good for their mental health. The heck with their mental health. They're not even human. They're just as human as you and I. Ah, BS. All BS. That thing is not a human. It's a thing they cooked up in a lab. Sure, they made it, but it's human. A powerful slap is heard. Then you're no better than the people who made those godforsaken things. I'm sick and tired of the scientists here looking at that thing like it's human. It's not. It's unholy. Unholy. Are you aware of what your job is? You're a scientist for God's sake. Even I have boundaries and that thing is not a godly creature. I can't believe you. Then don't. Get the heck out of here. Have you lost your mind? We're in this together. We're a part of the same team. If you're not on board, why are you even here? I'm here because I'm stopping this right where it is. What happened after, judging by the sounds, was a fight. Furniture was broken and it ended with Dr. Smith on the floor sprawled out. Mark broke down in tears. Jacqueline came out of the room and picked him up by his neck, saying how he should have never been created. He managed to break free and run off. But then Jacqueline chased Mark down before stabbing him four times and throwing him out behind the building in a garbage bag. He came back inside and treated his wounds. Jacqueline managed to convince the rest of the team that Smith had tried to hang himself and Mark ran away. She'd even planted evidence. Since he was a child, none of the team believed him. I was furious and I was horrified. After Jacqueline found Mark in his room, she began a four-week-long cycle of physical and verbal abuse, and nobody said a thing. After a few days, as to not raise suspicion, I asked the lead researcher to move me and Mark into the same room. He thought long and hard about the decision, and to my surprise, he agreed. When I asked what had swayed his decision, he told me that Mark had also asked and a few of the researchers, including Jane, had also lobbied for this decision. We were to be moved into a log cabin on the river. He chose the area because he liked the scenery. When moving day came, I opened the door to a bruised Mark. I hugged him tight. I mean, I couldn't stop hugging him. I cried and cried, saying that I felt sorry for him was an understatement. Jacqueline had stopped the attacking and feared being discovered by one of the other scientists. However, it was only temporary, as I would soon learn. I will never forget the turning point of June 9th, 2019. I had woke up to a loud bang, like a balloon pop, but with a more solid crack. And then I heard it again and then again, as I realized what the sound was. My heart crawled up my throat. I crept to Mark's room. He was shaking and crying under the bed. 
I hid with him as a shadow down the hallway had approached us. It was Jacqueline, clutching a firearm in her right hand. The window in the bathroom had shattered, and shuffling inside was heard. Four more people came in. They were wearing black hoods. Jacqueline reached out to one and gave the hooded figure a small bag. The figures then started searching the house. I shushed Mark and slowly led him to a vent. I tried to usher him in, but he couldn't fit. I then remembered a story that I heard about a Japanese prison break and I gulped. I whispered my idea, and with tears in his eyes, he nodded. I slowly and carefully took my shirt off and then wrapped it around his head. He bit down and clenched his eyes shut. I put his left shoulder against one of the legs of the bed. I grabbed his chest and upper arm and put my legs against the bed frame. I kicked hard and a loud pop rang out. Mark yelled through the makeshift gag. It was horrible to look at, but it worked. I clenched my eyes shut in fear as I slowly began to set up his other arm. I kicked back again, popping the arm out of the socket. He cried, but he managed to keep quiet. I then pushed him through the vent. He could fit now. I followed him, pushing him by his feet. I don't know how long I crawled through the vent, pushing him along. I led him to the basement vent opening. I pushed him over the grate and then positioned myself over it. I looked at the fake nails and pulled one out. I started slowly unscrewing the grate. Once unscrewed, the grate fell, causing a loud bang. A figure ran in and unsheathed the knife. He grabbed my leg and I kicked and flailed, but he easily overpowered me. He grabbed my mouth, shushing me before sliding a knife across my neck. The pain was immense, but I had a plan. I fell to the ground playing dead. It worked. I slid my sock off, holding my breath. The room reeked of my blood. I could feel myself losing my grip on life. I wrapped the sock around my neck to stop the bleeding, and I wrapped my other sock up the same way. I was softly crying. Mark dropped down, landing on his dislocated arm. He held in a shout of pain and crawled over to me. He put his arms out and then slowly pushed the joints back in. He groaned through clenched teeth, before weakly crawling over to me. He held my neck to help with the wound. What came next doesn't come easy to me since I was losing a lot of blood. I remember him smashing the basement window and practically throwing me out. I remember weakly telling him not to call 911 and to call Jane instead. He nodded and told her to bring a baseball bat, telling her that we had been attacked. I blacked out a bit after that. I woke up in a white room, my neck wound sealed shut with hidden stitches. I could hardly breathe without coughing. I felt like the wind had just been knocked out of me. I was a bloody crying mess. Mark lay next to me in a separate bed. He was asleep and I saw the door handle twist and Jane walked in. He was crying and he hugged me tight. She was thanking everything there was for me being okay and I later learned what had happened from Jane. As it turns out, the woman who tried to kill us wasn't Dr. Jacqueline. The real Dr. Jacqueline had been murdered in her sleep by an anti-scientific group known as The Journey. That's who came after me. The woman was actually named Rebecca Miller. She had a warrant for Grand Theft Auto assault and after the incident, two charges of murder in the first degree. 
I've never been happier to see the red and blue flash of a police car. The experiment has since been suspended and Mark and I have been adopted by Jane and her husband, Kim. They're the greatest parents that I could have asked for. Due to the non-traditional origins of Mark and I, we receive a special income from the government of 200 bucks a month and we don't have to attend school in person. Instead, we are enrolled in an online course. I still have the scar on my neck and I cry every time I think about it. Mark has grown up to be a supportive, gentle person whom I love dearly. Now I know this probably isn't the story that you expected. You probably thought it was something about a killer robot or a crazy genetic abomination that took out anything that moves. But I'm here to tell you that we don't need tales of the supernatural or the paranormal to frighten your children at night. The scariest things that we can ever overcome are ourselves. As a last note, I love and support everyone who has helped me through my trouble. I can't thank you enough. I'd like to thank HelloFresh for being a continued sponsor of Creepscast. In case you guys haven't heard, HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit, providing farm-fresh pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes that get delivered right to your doorstep. It makes home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. I've been loving my HelloFresh subscription. My favorite part is that you can pick what you're in the mood for from their 50 different weekly options. You can even skip weeks when you need to, change delivery dates, or update your preferences on the convenient HelloFresh app. And on top of that, Green Chef is now owned by HelloFresh, and with a wider array of meal plans to choose from, there's something for everyone. I mean, a couple of nights ago, I whipped up some creamy pesto chicken that they had sent, and I'm not kidding you guys when I say it tasted like restaurant quality. It's awesome that it's so affordable and delicious to boot. Go to HelloFresh.com slash MrCreep16 and use code MrCreep16 for up to 16 free meals and 3 free gifts. Again, that's HelloFresh.com slash MrCreep16. Use code MrCreep16 for up to 16 free meals and 3 free gifts. Thanks again to HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. What we found underneath Berlin Written by C. Farlow 7 I'm a World War II historian. I served in the United States Air Force as an F-16 pilot in the 149th Fighter Wing in San Antonio. My grandfather was a P-51 pilot and got to see the skies of Germany during the Great War. He would tell me stories as a kid about how Germany was so technologically advanced with the development of the jet engine and near impenetrable tanks. His stories are what inspired me to serve and follow in his footsteps. Once I finished my service, I became a historian, as World War II has always piqued my interest. I was spending a month in Berlin trying to find and excavate Nazi bunkers, foxholes, whatever we could find. My team consisted of two of my military colleagues that served right alongside me, a weapons expert, my son, and myself. Sam and Alan served as my wingmen whenever we were overseas, 
and they also shared my interest in the history of what happened back in the 40s. And Jack was a weapons expert who specialized in Nazi explosives and weaponry. My son Mark had just finished up high school and wanted to enjoy what he thought was a vacation. Upon the ugly surprise that this was work, he was mad but he also quickly got interested in this line of work. After two weeks of grueling work and nothing to show for it, Mark suggested that we take a break and go explore a secret cave he found not too far from camp. We had the equipment for such a trip and a little fun definitely could not hurt us. The next day, we got all of our equipment together and we prepared for our cave expedition. For whatever reason, I was slightly unnerved as I tried to look up this cave and I couldn't find anything on it. It was as if it didn't exist. I just brushed this off as thinking the locals have just missed a spot and we left for the cave with Mark leading us. We traveled to what looked like a boulder in the middle of a forest and Mark said that we were there. Everyone and I were looking at him in confusion, but he laughed and moved a big chip of the boulder away, and a giant cavity opened up under us. The first thing that I noticed was how dark it really was. The cave looked like it didn't have a bottom to it. Sam grabbed a flare from his backpack and dropped it down the hole. Surprisingly, it didn't drop too far until it hit the bottom. It looked around 30 feet deep in total. We got our rope ready, and we went down into the cave. Once further down, we could go left or right. We played rock, paper, scissors, and the winner got to choose. I have never lost a game of rock, paper, scissors, so I chose right. I deeply regretted this decision, as the cave soon sloped downwards at an alarming rate. It was rough, but not bad enough for us to turn around. After about an hour of descending, we started hearing this strange, metallic, clanking noise. Once we heard the noise, we all stopped, our hearts almost beating out of our chest as we thought, what could it be? We continued advancing, noticing the noise was in a stationary position. As we went deeper, it got louder. We kept continuing on deeper into the cave, and we were starting to see man-made marks on the wall, as if someone with a pickaxe had just went at it. This was later confirmed as we found a pickaxe head covered in rust. This made me ecstatic, as we could have just found an unknown labor camp used by the Nazis. It would be my first major find. A loud bang woke me out of my stupor, as I realized the noise was right around the corner. My heart racing from the adrenaline of fear and excitement, I turned the corner and almost crapped my pants. A huge seven-foot steel door stood ten feet away from me, opening and closing, making that loud metallic bang that we had all heard. I took a sigh of relief before I realized what I had just discovered. I had blacked out as the next thing I remember 
is Alan waking me up on the cold stone floor. None of us could believe it. We had just found a secret underground base untouched for decades. Or so we thought. Mark was just as excited as I was, as he just stared in awe at the crudely constructed metal door. Jack took a closer look at the door and realized that it was indeed German. Not to our surprise, of course, but what he said next made our excitement turn into fear. Um, guys, there was a huge explosion that blasted the door open. Could have been a booby trap, Mark replied, suddenly sad at the fact that we may not have been the first to find this place. Sam took a step inside cautiously and immediately turned around and vomited. Inside the door was a room that resembled an airlock, but two scorched bodies lay in the middle of the room. Beyond the resemblance of a human, the only way we knew what they were was by the hand of an unfortunate soul blown across the room with a ring on the finger. The inside of the ring had an inscription, Darla, my love, 1984. Well, I guess we know when they got married, but when did they get here? Evan said. I'm no expert, but the untouched hand looks like it has been here for over a decade. This was true as to how many bits of flesh and bone remained. Jack chimed in saying that this must have been some serious firepower for an explosion to knock over a door as big as this one. Only I'll spend time in silence and then, Sam said. Um, look guys, we need to report this in. I don't like saying this, but there's no telling what other traps there are. This is by far the coolest thing I have ever participated in, but I don't want to lose my life because of it either. I was infuriated at the thought, knowing good and well the German government would shut this place down and destroy everything to bury their tainted past. Almost in a scream, I said, over my dead body. Jack came to Sam's rescue, but Sam, Allen, and myself all agreed that we need to learn more about this place, as it really could be our only chance. Sam and Jack reluctantly agreed, as I apologized for my previous behavior. We all voted Jack as the lead of our five-man group, as he knew the field of booby traps used by the Germans. After a while, we reached the end of the square room, as the identical door from the other side stood at our wake and attention. Luckily, we got the door to open up with ease, but the lack of signs saying where we were and where we were going began to make us nervous. When we opened the door, we were surprised to see that the facility still had electricity as the lights were all flickering ominously. There was a hallway. In this hallway were ten doors, five on each side. Between every door was a rectangular window that led into the room. Looking into the moss-ridden glass of the first door on the right, with the lights in the room off, I shined my flashlight inside and noticed that it looked eerily like a hospital room. 
The room looked like it contained a stretcher and some movable trays with syringes on them, unused by the look of them. We tried to open the door, but it seems as if it was jammed shut. The rooms in the entire hallway contained the same thing, until the third one on the left. Inside was the same thing, but a human skeleton lay on the table. I was terrified, as I noticed these scratch marks on the side of the wall, as whoever this was tried to dig his way out using nothing but his hands. Beside his bony fingers lay an empty syringe. My imagination went crazy, and I wanted to know what was in the syringe. Were the Nazis testing drugs? Was it human psychology experiments? Strength supplements? The list went on and on in my head, until Mark came over to us saying that he had opened up one of the doors. Inside the room was a pungent smell, but to my satisfaction, there was a syringe full of red liquid. I stuffed it into my backpack as we ventured further into the hallway. The rest of the rooms were empty or had nothing noteworthy, unfortunately. Once we had reached the end of the hallway, there was another 30-foot hallway with what looked like an elevator at the tail end of it. On the left side was a door that had German written on it at one point, but it had eroded to the extent that none of us could properly read it. We spent around five minutes getting the door to open up due to the old and rusted hinges. We opened up the door to find what looked like a security office. Computer monitors were covering a wall with switchboards on the other side, we were also welcomed to the site of three skeleton remains of what seemed to be these security guards. I quickly identified them as SS officers by their uniform, but each had one thing in common, a gaping hole in each one of their skulls. Alan calmly stated, Well, I guess we know how they died. Either they did it to themselves or somebody got to them. We decided on the former because there was no sign of a struggle, but hey, none of us were forensic scientists, so it's honestly still up for debate. After a long moment of silence, we weighed the pros and cons of leaving this forsaken base and never returning. Alan, Sam, Jack, and I have seen some things that no man should ever see, as we had all served in the military but this made all of our past experiences feel like childhood memories. We were starting to leave until Mark realized that the elevator had collapsed many years ago and we could take the ladder down or up to see what the main reason for this base was. After some thought, we realized the opportunity that we almost wasted and we all decided to go further into the dark abyss we descend for what seemed like hours until we reach another door. Looking up, I realized that it was only about 100 feet away from where we had entered the shaft, but I already knew that we were deep in the earth to begin with, and going deeper concerned me, and I could tell that it concerned my colleagues as well, but we were too far now. I know that if I left now, 
not knowing what is down here would haunt me for the rest of my life. We slowly opened the door, and we were shocked and surprised to see a large open hangar. It was filled to the brim with aircraft, some that we recognized and some that we didn't. This captured our attention for about five seconds, as we soon noticed right next to the elevator shaft was what looked like a defense position. There were sandbags piled three feet high, with German machine guns perched on top of it. Horrifyingly, there were five skeletons in uniform sitting in chairs next to the sandbags. Red was splattered all around the walls behind them. Before we could even comprehend what had happened to them, we heard a blood curdling scream. From the corner of the hangar, we saw a hangar door open, and a young blonde woman came and ran right into us. She was speaking so fast in a language that I didn't recognize. It had a hint of German, but I couldn't directly translate. The only thing I understood was the word, monsters. Right after she had said that, she took a pistol off one of the dead soldiers and sealed her fate herself once and for all. Right in front of us, the red splattering all over Alan who was now puking. I grabbed a hold of the pistol and a grease gun left behind by the other soldiers as everyone else followed suit. I didn't care if this was the find of the century. It was not worth my life or the lives of my friends. At this point, we all silently agreed to return to the surface and report this all to the authorities. I turned around to take one last glance at the marvelous architecture and then engineering feet when out of the door where the girl ran from came two soldiers dressed in World War II SS uniforms. Only they didn't care about us or even notice us for that matter. They slammed the door shut only for it to be blown off its hinges by an unknown force. Their bodies crashed into a place that I didn't recognize, as their remains were ground to a pulp from the forest. I stared in shock to see what could only be described as Satan himself. I can't even really put it into words. The creature, whatever it was, stood at least eight feet tall, had horns sharp enough to penetrate anything, scaled skin, and red eyes that could literally penetrate your soul. I was frozen in fear as the creature looked my way, for it felt like hours we were in a staring contest until the creature gave up and went back into the hallway. Relieved that my pants were still dry, I noticed that I was the only one left. The others must have fled and climbed back up the shaft. I followed and while climbing the shaft, I was almost hit by a body that was unrecognizable to me. It screamed as it fell into what seemed like a bottomless pit. I heard Sam and Jack scream, and I climbed up the ladder as fast as I could and I saw Jack and Alan in hand-to-hand -hand combat with what I could only describe as zombies. My first thought was, oh of course, Nazi zombies are finally real. But this thought soon passed me as I noticed Sam on the ground next to a pool of blood. His face looked pale as the veins in his body bulged and slowly turned a tint of purple. 
As if he was in immense pain, he was screaming and writhing until he grabbed the pistol that he had taken earlier, and he took his own life as well. The sound from the explosion brought me back to reality, as I noticed about 20 zombies running full speed towards me. I quickly raised my grease gun and said a quick prayer that it would fire, and to my surprise it did. I aimed for the head as what popular horror culture teaches us, but I missed a couple of shots and hit them in the torso and it seemed like that did the trick as well. I emptied my clip as Alan, Jack, Mark, and myself all take a breath and inspect our handiwork. We counted, 48 including the one that fell in the shaft. Where the heck did they come from? I thought we already checked this hallway, said Mark. Jack said somberly, I don't know, nor do I care. Just someone help me take Sam back home. Alan, being the strongest of us all, grabbed the body of our now dead comrade and we jogged toward the exit. We reached the airlock and found the door that was broken shut and locked. A light came on in the room, illuminating four soldiers in uniform and what looked to be an officer. English? No, American, replied Mark. Ah, so I see you found your way into one of the four rake strongholds. Very interesting seeing as how we had to dispose of the two so-called YouTubers. But we cannot let you go for obvious reasons. I piped in saying that people know where we are, and that the US government had been tracking us, hoping that he wouldn't catch my bluff. He disregarded what I said and then he said, Claus, give our guests a tour of the facility. The older one might find it very fascinating, as he only explored the abandoned part of the base. Let us fix our bridge and then take them on a VIP tour. My son Alan, Jack, and the corpse of Sam are now locked inside the airlock. We can hear screaming and gunfire. Someone please send help. Send the whole United States freaking Marines. The Nazis have opened up a portal to hell, and they are negotiating with the devil. God help us all. I used to deal drugs, but now I deal demons instead. Written by Beardify. My papa ran moonshine and he drank it too. He drained till he drove his family away and put himself into an early grave. I left at 16 and swore that my own kids would never grow up thinking of their father as a dealer or an addict. But it's the truth. Six months ago, I started using the same oxy that I sold for a living. And I had seen enough pellets to know that it was only a matter of time before my life crumbled like a house of cards. I tried everything. Doctors, rehab... Even locking myself in an abandoned cabin up in Pawpaw's holler. Nothing worked. Until I found Reverend Elijah Bledsoe. He cured me with a single touch. And I'll stay cured. As long as I follow the orders. The Lord giveth. The Reverend said. With a knowing little smile. And the Lord taketh away. Before I got hooked, I thought that I had saved up enough to leave a pill running behind forever. Now I'm on another continent, living on the charity of the church, and I'm starting to think that the tasks assigned to me here are even more dangerous than dealing.
Reverend Bledsoe didn't tell me everything all at once. He upped the dosage slowly. At first, it was just clearing drug dealers off the streets and around the mission. It was violent work and it made sense why he'd been looking for a guy like me to do it. But then my orders got stranger. Follow the dealers. Report any sudden changes in their appearance or behavior. Any unnatural weather events or power outages that occur nearby. The reverend was asking me to look for something without telling me what it was. By the time that I finally found out, it was already too late. I had just finished giving my report to the reverend in his study. A bunker-like room in the basement of the mission that looked like it had been built to survive a nuclear war. Bledsoe had added a Turkish carpet, wood furniture, bookshelves, and warm golden lamps. But they didn't take much away from the grimness of the place. Reverend Bledsoe took his personal Bible from the inner pocket of his suit. He opened it and pulled out what I thought was an illustration, but was really a cleverly hidden card, like the tarot cards my hippie aunt used to mess around with. It had this odd design in the back, like a closed eye inside of a hand. Do you know what this is, Brother Andy? Have you ever seen the Aeads or any of the others with something like this? I wasn't sure. I need you to find a young man from the neighborhood. A young man without much to lose, without many connections. I'm sure you know the sort that I mean. I did. I had been that sort of young man before, too many years ago. You need to collect something from him. Hair, fingernails, spit, blood, it doesn't matter. Burn it, pour the ashes over the card, and recite the words that I give you. Maybe you'll notice some changes right away, maybe not. Send him to a club called Das Exil. You should ask for Conrad. Tell a young man not to leave until he has three other cards like this. I followed my orders. I didn't notice any of those mysterious changes the reverend had talked about. Just one. When the blonde skater punk I had chosen to complete the task came back with more of those weird cards, I could tell by his face that this Conrad guy was dead. It's been a week since then. I hope to put all that strangeness behind me. But yesterday night... Reverend Bledsoe called me back down to his study. I need you to make an exchange for me. The Reverend placed the three cards I had retrieved into an envelope. You'll receive three, just like it. Check them carefully. The cards felt heavy in my hand, like their menace gave them extra weight. I stood to go. Oh, and Brother Andy... Bledsoe grabbed my arm. If the opportunity should arise to leave with all six cards, take it. Reverend Bledsoe forced me to take a paper map, one of those fold-out things for tourists. I felt like a fool trying to read the soggy thing beneath the streetlights in the late March rain. 
but it was my only option. Ever since I started carrying the reverence envelope, my phone had started acting all buggy. And that wasn't all. Occasionally, nearby lights would flicker or even go out, like some great darkness was walking with me through the rainy night. The Reverend's map led me to a rundown warehouse district, the kind of place where the only living things were weeds and stray cats. At least we wouldn't be disturbed, I hoped. Delivery Warehouse, Side Door B. It swung open as soon as I got closed. Stepping into the huge, empty space was like stepping into the belly of some monstrous sea creature. Three men stood behind a table. A single red candle was the only source of light. It made me think crazily of ambushes, night vision goggles, knives in the dark. I sauntered up to the table with confidence that I didn't feel, and I laid down my envelope. Without a word, the man on the other side reached inside of his jacket, and my hand instinctively reached for the pistol that I no longer carried. He took out an identical envelope and passed it across the table to me. It held three cards like the one that the reverend had given me. I gasped when the man across the table took the cards that I had given him and passed them one by one through the flame of the candle. They should have burned, but they didn't. He bent them, tore at them, but they were completely unharmed. It was some kind of test. I frowned and did the same with the cards that the stranger had given me. As each card passed through the flame, I heard something in my head, a kind of excited whispering, like something caged that was eager to get free. I stuffed the cards back in their envelope as quickly as possible, and that should have been it. Just like so many deals in rest stops and parking lots all up and down the I-75 back in the USA, Wordless goodbye. See you never. Gunfire shattered the silence. Red stains bloomed like flowers on the yellow, soaked shirt of the man across the table. I hit the ground as more shots rang out. Something slammed into the table. The candle went out. I crawled behind some shelves and the stranger's ragged breathing and the running footsteps of our attackers was ringing in my ears. The stranger was dying. That much was clear, but he wasn't going quietly. He whispered something under his breath, over and over in a language that I didn't understand. Bezalel, Bezalel. Gusts of cold, dusty wind began to blow toward the dying man behind me, but I was too busy trying to stay alive to worry about the weird indoor weather. I kept moving on my hands and knees toward where I hoped the wall would be. I was crawling blind through a maze of broken wooden pallets, cardboard boxes, disused equipment. When five flashlights lit up behind me, I knew that I was screwed. The brilliant beams of light were military grade, 
and in their glow, I could see that I had been scrambling in the wrong direction. The wall with its emergency door was too far away. I would never make it without being seen, and if I ran, they would gun me down for sure. I thought of Lee, the look on his face the first time that I took him fishing, and then Amber eating a huge plate of pasta at the kitchen table after a track meet. So many memories, and here I was, about to lose them forever. But the attackers weren't looking in my direction at all. Their flashlights were fixed on the spot where the stranger had fallen. The darkness there was thicker. It seemed to drink up their light. The reverend had preached about the pillar of fire in the book of Exodus. But this, this was a pillar of shadow. And the bullet-ridden stranger was moving inside of it. He rose jerkily, unnaturally to his feet, almost like a human-sized puppet. I wondered what was pulling his strings. He shouldn't have been able to crawl so fast, not after three shots to the chest, and the darkness shouldn't have moved with him. The glow of the nearest attacker's flashlight disappeared into it. Panicked gunshots, a scream, and then nothing. The other attackers trained their beams on the moving darkness with no effect. The thing inside was coming for them, one by one, and when it was done, I could see its handiwork in the wild, rolling beam of a fallen flashlight. These men had been trying to kill me just seconds ago, but I still felt sick when I saw how they had been twisted. They were bent and broken until not one limb faced in the right direction. Their shrieks finally got me moving. Just when I was about to sprint for the door, I heard Reverend Bledsoe's voice. If the opportunity should arise to leave with all six cards, take it. The flashlight on the floor continued to spin, casting freakish shadows through the huge warehouse. I caught a glimpse of the knocked-over table, the snuffed-out candle, and the plain-looking envelope beside it. There was a burst of sound, something scrambling unnaturally fast on all fours off to my left. I grabbed the rolling flashlight and ran for the fallen table. A wall of night stepped between me and it. The light in my hand had lit up the warehouse in front of me, but suddenly... I could barely make out shadows a few feet ahead. Cool fingers came out of those shadows. They wrapped around my forearm and snapped it like a twig. And I knew they wouldn't stop there. I could feel their excitement, their eagerness to mangle me more. I couldn't see the stranger's face. But I aimed for where it should have been and stabbed forward with the flashlight. Be, be as a little, I cried out, not knowing why. A shriek pierced the darkness, and I passed through it. I threw the flashlight as far as I could. Two fast, crawling steps chased after it, as I crept through the pitch-black warehouse toward the door. My shin slammed against the table, the stranger's envelope. 
I felt around on the concrete floor until I grabbed a hold of it. An angry, guttural roar and the echo of a shelf being ripped down let me know that the flashlight had been found. I was out of time. I ran my shoulder into the door and burst out into the night. Distant sirens told me someone had finally heard the gunshots going on. I smirked in spite of the pain from my broken arm, wondering how the authorities would explain what was inside of that warehouse and what wasn't. There would be no sign of the thing that had shattered those men so horribly. I knew that because, as I staggered back toward the mission, I took one last look over my shoulder. The stranger, or the thing inside the stranger, stepped out through the delivery door. Its movements were much less jerky now, more natural. It snapped its twisted neck casually back into place and closed its suit jacket over the bloodstains on its shirt. Its eyes met mine, and for a second, they were no longer the sad brown eyes of the stranger from across the table. They were the color of ink, with pupils as white as an arc welder's flame. The next thing that I remember... I was pushing my face off of the wet, nasty sidewalk with only one working arm. I'd fainted. The thing wearing this stranger's skin walked calmly away in the opposite direction, laughing to itself, laughing like a condemned man finally set free. The streetlights above it flickered out, one by one as it passed. When the time comes, don't believe the local news. Written by Toucan the Rapper. The title says it all. I don't care what the doctors, teachers, police, my parents, or anyone else in this crazy town says. There's no such thing as spontaneous human malnutrition. And come on, you probably haven't even heard of it. Well, no, of course you haven't heard of it. It's not real. Spontaneous Human Malnutrition, or SHM. Those three letters didn't just ruin my last year of middle school. They ruined my life. It's like every adult in town has gone mad. People don't just... They don't. Um, how do I even begin? It started during the lockdowns, and it wasn't until the fifth or sixth case that the local news started putting the pieces together. That's three weeks after Gran and I started our investigation. We knew something was up from the third victim. Why? Because the third victim was Doug's mom. Doug is or was the third member of our cafeteria loser musketeer setup. When his mom, when whatever SMH actually happened to her, she was in the background of our weekly D&D Zoom session. Doug was shaking dice and praying to the nerd gods for a critical, when a weird noise came from his audio. It was barely half a second long, almost too quick to notice, but it was loud. Like, really loud. 
So loud that dog jumped a few inches into his seat and dropped the dice. Grant and I never found out if Doug hit that crit. His blonde bowl cut whipped away from the screen before we heard the clattering of dice on polished wood. Me and Grant didn't really care too much about killing cave trolls anymore though. Both of us were glued to the screen, playing out in Doug's kitchen. The noise had come from Doug's mom. She had stumbled into shot, clutching the kitchen sink. She was vibrating. Not trembling, not shaking, vibrating. The motion didn't seem to be coming from any of her muscles. It was rapid jolting-like that caused by pneumatic tools rather than fits and convulsions. She had fallen to the floor by the time that Doug had reached her. Totally rigid and still jittering so fast that her form on my screen was barely more than a blur. From the angle, I couldn't see too much of what was going on. I saw Doug reach down to touch her, heard him yelp in pain, started yelling along with him when he recoiled and held up these stumps where his fingers had been. My speakers screeched at the moment he made contact. A horrible, shrill grinding with a wet edge. The exact same noise that Freddy Gruber's elbow made when he accidentally leaned on a power sander and woodshot back in 6th grade. Doug had no color left in his face. He wasn't aware of Grant and I yelling to him through our webcams either. His mom's ankles were still vibrating. The pace now so rapid that a cloud of sawdust started billowing from the floorboards beneath her. We were all screaming, Grant and I in terror, Doug from terror into blind and agony. Before any of us could find the scrap of calm meter to dial 911, Doug's mom let out a violent spasm. And then, with no warning, she fell still. The last frames of the Zoom call were Doug, staying over his mom's still in smoking body, pleading with her to wake up. I liked Doug's mom. She was like an aunt to me. I'm glad that I didn't have to see any more of her post, SHM, than those thin, nearly fleshless ankles. I hadn't seen what SHM did to a person in full yet. I wouldn't have to wait long. Within a week, it would be on the front page of both the local tribute and the Herald. At the time, though, all I could do was sit in lockdown isolation and ruminate, robbing myself of sleep for days trying to make any kind of sense out of what the heck I had just seen. That was my first brush with SHM. We were locked down so I couldn't get to Doug. By the time the quarantines had finished, he had been sent off to some institution. That's how Grant and I knew that we had to keep our mouths shut. Doug didn't, you see. He was very vocal about what he saw, and even more vocal about how spontaneous human malnutrition was a load of BS. Doug knew that he was being lied to, and so did we. We didn't have the anger of losing our mom to drive us, though. I think that's why Doug took a different approach. He didn't think sleuthing would get him anywhere. Answers needed to be taken, not found, he said. We tried to stop him, but once he got the idea to set fire to a police station in his head, there was no getting it out. Yeah, 2020 was definitely one of those years for me. Anyway, as I said, Doug's mom was the third victim, and it wasn't until the fifth or sixth that the media started connecting dots. There was nothing about the vibrating, of course. That seemed to be being deliberately kept under wraps. 
What led a local newscasters to connect the occurrences was the apparent containment within our town, and the, how shall they put this, unique state the victims were found in. It's from the victims that the SHM lie was created. You won't find any info on it. I know this because I'm not stupid. One of the first things I did when the disappearances started was liaise with my out-of-town contacts. The only SHM info online is on the web pages of local schools, hospitals, community centers, and so on. Try and access any of these from an IP outside of the county. 404, my dear friends. Try to get around that with a VPN. SWAT time. It only took two reports of that in our paranormal investigation discord for Grant and me to realize that we were completely alone. Everyone wants to help until helping means an armed unit at the door. But what is the SHM lie? The clue is in the name. Spontaneous. Because it happened suddenly and without any prior warning. There's no rhyme or reason to who gets picked or when. The oldest victim was in their 80s. The youngest was young enough that there are too many first graders around here familiar with funerals. Some go in their sleep. Others like Doug's mom. When they're humdrumming through their daily grind. And there's no sign that it's coming either. Well, that we knew of at least. It wasn't like any of the victims were around to recount what they had experienced in the lead up. Whatever happens, it happens suddenly. Nobody reported feeling unwell prior to getting SHMD'd. They're fine one second, buzzing so hard that they're dangerous to touch the next. The human part is obvious. It's the M in SHM. The malnutrition. That's the biggest part of the lie. A local doctor coined the term based on the state victims were left in after the deadly super convulsions. No matter their size beforehand, every SHM victim came out the other end looking well malnourished, extremely malnourished, the kind of malnourished that the term 0% body fat was made for. They showed a couple photos on the news and in the papers like I said, pictures that all came with a disclaimer that sensitive viewers would find them distressing. Apparently, we're all sensitive viewers when it comes to SHM even the local news anchors. It's a shame, actually, that the internet blacklisting means the clip of a 76 News host, Chip Dallas, bursting into tears live on air won't make it to YouTube. Despite the grim context, it's still pretty funny to see such a corny POS lose their crap so bad. We didn't think it was funny at the time, though, of course. Took a few days of emotional distance before we found enough teenage edginess to force a laugh at his blubbering. Mainly because it meant we both had to lie about the fact that we had been crying too. It's the eyes that do it. Nothing prepares you for them, even in a photograph. When you hear about something called a spontaneous human malnutrition, you expect to see rib cages. You expect to see bones and joints sticking out at odd angles, draped in a sheet-thin layer of near-translucent skin that leaves nothing of the anatomy within its imagination. As heroin is seen, those peeled back lips, those teeth sticking up jagged and crooked from shriveled gums. It can be if you're not blindsided by them. The sight of their distended bellies is haunting, sure. But if you've ever seen what normal malnutrition looks like, then you're not in unfamiliar territory. The severity of it will take you back, no doubt. 
Being able to see every crease and fold of a person's lower intestine is jarring, even if you're given a heads up after all. Despite your shock though, these things won't create any kind of cognitive dissonance for you. They're about on par with what your brain will conjure when you read the phrase, died of starvation. The eyes though, no amount of disclaimers or warnings could prep you enough for the eyes. And the first thing off was the look of the face surrounding them. Every single SHM victim I've seen had the same expression. Terror, complete and utter terror. All of them died screaming. The eyeballs themselves are far, far worse though. Unnatural. No disease can do that and I know because Grant and I had researched it for weeks. It doesn't matter what color your eyes are before SMH. When you come out the other end of it, they'll be black. Not black like coal or like ink or shadow. Black like the darkest reaches of a deep space. The kind of black that absorbs all light. So nothing twinkles or shimmers in them. You've seen a shark's eyes, right? Imagine them but a thousand times darker. That's why everyone watching Chip Dallas's 76 News special on the mysterious new disease that had so far taken six people was crying, screaming, or laughing uncontrollably. Not everyone lapped up the disease lie, though. It's a small town, but it's not that small. We've got two high schools. And Gran and I were far from the only ones who saw SHM for the BS that it was. You know what they say about the truth, though? A lie can hold it down and beat the crap out of it before it even knows it's in a fight. Doug was the first non-believer to get, as we were told, sent away. He tried to burn down a police station, though. When they took him, we weren't at all very surprised. It wasn't until Brian Jerick's quote-unquote suicide that Grant and I realized just how far the mayor, police, government, military, whoever was prepared to go to keep everything covered up. It was six months after the first SHM case. So that's about 102 confirmed deaths for context. At their regular nightly vigils, the townsfolk would say nothing, with their lips but everything with their furtive glances and nervous floor fixations. Brian Jarek is, was a local podcaster. Before SHM, he had talked mainly about nature trails in the closest national park, or shows that were coming through one of the three theaters that we boasted. As the epidemic unfolded, this all changed. Brian saw through the BS too, and he was very vocal about it. He had the balls to ask the questions on his podcast. Grant and I would only whisper to each other in our quiet corner of the cafeteria. If it's a disease, then where is the CDC? Why isn't this gaining to national or international attention? What kind of disease turns your eyes like that? Where does all the body mass they've lost go? How can they vibrate so fast it sands down wood, but they remain physically unscathed? Why isn't it spread outside the boundaries of our town? Why aren't the death certificates public? How come their clothes look ragged and old by the time they stop moving? Brian became a firebrand, a preacher voicing the doubts that we all shared, the questions so many of us had but were all too afraid to ask. He had known they were coming for him too. You can proudly guess the story. 
The night before his disappearance, he abjectly stated that he would under no circumstances end himself. When the first guy to point this out on Facebook was reported dead an hour later, the message became pretty clear. After that, pretty much every public doubter and worried citizen kept their mouth shut. Gran and I didn't accept it though. We couldn't. It wasn't a disease. We didn't know what it was, but we knew that there was no such thing as SHM. We were being lied to and unless we could figure out why, we wouldn't be safe. We both begged our respected parents to move out of town, of course, but you can imagine how that went down. Grant's dad told him to stop being a baby. Mine sat me down and gave me a lecture on the importance of not running from your problems. Both of them and our moms bought into the lie of it all. And I'm not going to lie. So heavy was my sense of helplessness that I cried myself to sleep most nights after that one. If it weren't for Grant, the sense of isolation, that feeling of being the only sane one in the nuthouse, it would have broken me. Grant's not me. He's made of tougher stuff. Whereas I retreated into existential despair, Grant decided Brian Jarek's death as the catalyst to get up and get stuff done. That's why he was the one that managed to gather the puzzle pieces and put them together. It took him a little while though. A few months and several dozen more bodies happened before the morning he arrived at my door with a cardboard box full of laptops. I still remember his expression as clear as day. He was the phrase, I've got it done personified. But where his wide grin wore the phrase triumphantly, his eyes bore it with guilt, shame, and fear. He made me help him carry the box up to my room to dump the dozen or so old laptops onto my bed. I had to run through every variation of what the heck that I knew before he spewed a rambling, near-breathless explanation. He had started with the footage recorded from our D&D session. He had been planning to keep it a surprise, but he had been recording them to put together an animated highlight reel for Doug's birthday. I was a little annoyed at the invasion of privacy at first, but more irate that Grant had kept this a clue for me. After a brief and admittedly genuine apology, Grant opened up one of the laptops. He pulled a USB drive out of his pocket and plugged it in. When I asked why he hadn't just used my PC if he had the clip on a thumb drive, he muttered something about not wanting to buy me a new monitor. I understood exactly what he meant once he had played me the clip. This probably is no shock to any of you, but the three-minute snippet was of the end of our final D&D session. It was the video of Doug's mom. It wasn't raw footage, though. Grant had edited it. Specifically, he had slowed it down to a tenth of the original speed. The three-minute clip represented only about 20 seconds of real-time footage. It was enough. Grant had found all that we needed to prove that SHM was a hokum made up BS disease to cover up something else happening. Despite what you're thinking, it didn't feel like a victory. I've never felt worse about being proved right. The something else was so far outside the realm of my explanation that trying to understand what I was watching literally gave me a migraine. All I remember thinking when the clip finished was that I'd give anything to wake up in a reality where I had been wrong. Once more, I was watching Doug standing over his mom in his kitchen. He was moving at super slow speeds as to be expected. 
but she wasn't. She was still shaking, but it was shaking now, not blur-inducing vibrations. Her speed was still faster than it should have been, but thanks to Grant's editing, we could see what she actually was doing down there. She was writhing, kicking, flexing every joint in her body with jolting spasms that bent them into contortionist-like angles. To my disgust, I realized that what I had thought was the natural crack and pop of slowed audio was actually the snapping and crunching of bones and cartilage. More than once, she had twisted into a position that showed more than just her ankles. We saw her legs, saw the flesh on them shrink away in a matter of seconds. We would catch glimpses of her hands, of the skin around her digits, vacuum sealing the bones so tightly that fingernails splintered and cracked. Only once did we see her face, and it was one time too many. She spasmed forward, folding inward without warning until her temples touched her toes. Her eyes were... they were burning. Bright green flames poured from her sockets, the black orbs at their center bubbling and sputtering with intense heat. The skin on her face was pulled so tight that pulsing veins around her eyes seemed to dance and writhe above the skin. She was screaming too, screaming with such force that the windpipe in her shrinking neck bulged and her writhing nostrils bled. Her jaw was open long past that point that it should have been dislocated. That's when I realized what the weird audio spike had been, when I had seen the footage months earlier, when it was live and at normal speed. It was Doug's mom's screams, sped up so fast they sounded like microphone feedback. With the footage slowed down, it was clearly audible. Garbled and distorted, sure, but there was no mistaking the stretched, tinny shrieks cascading from the laptop speaker. It wasn't a scream of fear, but of pain. Unrestrained, unreserved agony. It was when Doug started to bend over in super slow motion that my stomach had dropped. I remembered his fingers, the power sander sound that reminded me of Freddy Gruber's elbow in sixth grade. With the footage slowed, Doug's attempts to save his mother sounded nothing like a power sander. It sounded like lightning. The moment the tips of his fingers were within six or so inches of the top of her head, there was an almighty crack, a booming thunder so loud that the speakers screamed for a few seconds before falling silent. Twin streams of emerald flame leaped from Doug's mom's boiling hissing eyes the moment the hardware-killing noise hit. The green fire wrapped around Doug's slow-motion fingers. The moment they made contact, the flesh of his digits curled and split, falling away in fluttering shreds that cascaded back towards his mom's black hole eyes. Within a few seconds, there was nothing left but bone, and below long that too was lost in the bubbling voids. Doug had pulled his hand away quickly, so I knew he didn't lose more than a few fingers, but still... The tension caused by watching him, from our slow perspective, holding his hand in that acid-like green burning, had me grinding my teeth so hard that I lost a filling. The relief I felt when he finally pulled his hand away was short-lived, however. The worst of Grant's discovery was yet to come. That's the moment that they arrived. I can't describe them to you because I've not actually seen them, and neither is Grant. That's the thing, though, you can't. The way you can't see them, though, that I can describe really clear. 
Even though thinking about it too long makes me so queasy that I nearly puke. I didn't notice them at first. They started small, three clusters of fuzzy darkness hovering at Doug's feet. Within a few frames though, they were as tall as his knees and wider as he was. In other words, impossible to ignore. The panic writhing my breathing grew louder and louder as the three beings unfurled. Once materialized at their full height, they were easily nine feet tall. The very peaks of the conical heads brushing the ceiling of Doug's mom's lofty rusty kitchen. At first, I thought they were dark, shadowy. The same intense blackness that, SHM, left the eyes of every single victim. That's when Grant reached forward, paused the video, and minimized the window. I stared at the generic desktop wallpaper, my jaw falling open and closed. I sputtered, trying to get words out. All my mouth could find was shrill, nonsensical gibberish. The three figures were still there. The pixels of their forms weren't displaying darkness. They were dead. I peered down to look closer and sure enough, the backlight of the screen was completely gone where the figure stood. The pixels at the edges of the silhouettes, the ones that should have been displaying the clear blues and greens of a rolling hill, flickered and glitched. They cycled through every color visible to the naked eye, not to mention some that shouldn't have been. Although please, don't ask me to elaborate on this because, if I think about it too much, it literally triggers an epileptic fit. No teenage hyperbole. It was at this point that Grant started frantically booting up the rest of the laptops. On the screens of every single one were three identical clusters of dead pixels outlined by a maddening, razor-thin spectrum of maddening color. Whatever these things were, capturing their likeness and displaying it digitally was too much for man-made electronics. Grant proved this by showing me his phone, which he had used to film one of the laptops while it played the video. There on his home screen were three miniature clusters of lightless pixels with conical heads, figures that aligned perfectly with the aforementioned video when he tapped it open with his thumb a few seconds later. I was babbling and shaking by this point. There were more than a few tears, let's put it that way. Grant wasn't done yet though. The clip still wasn't finished. The last 20 seconds of the clip were of the three figures towering over Doug. They didn't move, but I could tell they must have been doing something behind their shroud of pixel death. I know for two reasons. I'll get through the least harrowing of them first because for the second, I need to build myself up a little. The first reason I knew the conical-headed giants were there for a reason was Doug's mom. She was convulsing more violently than ever. Her spasms were rocketing her from the floor so hard that she seemed almost to be floating toward the three dark masses. While perhaps pulled toward them is more appropriate. Pulled by her bubbling, boiling, black hole eyes. The green flames had once more leaped from them. This time, though, there were three tendrils of fire, and thankfully none of them found Doug. Instead, they snaked their way through the air until they each found a mass of pixel death. Their flames had disappeared behind their respective voids, and to my growing horror, I realized they were at the exact height one would expect to find, on a nine-foot conical-headed being, a mouth. The arcs of green fire kept Doug's mom and the dead pixel figures connected, 
until almost the very end of the club. Her convulsions grew more violent and contorting than ever. Her skin rippled as the final ounces of fat, muscle, and mass were sucked into those void-filled orbs to be burned into green flames. Every vein in her face bulged to a bursting point. Her mouth twisted into a teeth-bearing grimace from which streaks of foam oozed. Doug stood above his mom, still slow motion and oblivious, as the three towering beings around him consumed her until she was little more than an abyss-eyed skeleton draped in papery skin. As I said though, that was the first of the two reasons I knew those beings must have been doing something beneath those lifeless pixels. The second one, the one that's kept me up for however many nights had passed since that morning was much worse. I could hear them. Not through the speaker. The speaker was dead and busted. This was made all too apparent by the fact that Doug's mom's electric chair convulsions and screaming from burning eyes had been inaudible since Doug had made the mistake of trying to touch her. No, I could hear them in the room, from all around me. Their hollow tones echoed and bounced off of every wall. I yelled, whipping around in every direction, adrenaline shooting through every blood vessel. Grant was crying now, crying and mouthing, I'm sorry, over and over like a twisted mantra. It wasn't just the fact that, that I could hear them which made me throw the laptop out the window. It was what I could hear them doing, too. They were laughing. All three of them were locked in high-pitched, chittering hysterics. The kind of laughter you imagine a spider makes before it injects its cocooned prey with chemicals that turn them into liquid mulch. Every bart ha screeched through my eardrums, twisting my spine and setting off every nervous tick that I never knew I had. I shouted at Grant for about half an hour once I was satisfied the laptop hadn't survived the fall. He took it like a champ. And when I had finally calmed down, he showed me the knuckles that he had obtained when he put his fist through drywall after watching it for the first time. The fear that it created, it was beyond rationality. Hearing the laughter set off, something deep within me, a set of emotions long dormant thanks to the comfortable safety of modern life. Once upon a time, humans needed that mix of aggression and panic. They needed it because if they didn't have it, they would never be able to fight their way out of the corners the beings that live in shadows could back them into. I now know those feelings, although every single part of me wishes that I didn't. It was after I had apologized for losing my cool, and Grant began to talk about our options for what to do next, that our phones rang. I felt the little composure I had managed to build since the laptop went flying ebb away in an instant. There was no number, but instead of a caller not recognized, or withheld number, the writing on the screen showed two simple, spirit-crushing words. Human phone. I looked up at Grant, tears once more falling down my cheeks, and he was in the same state. He nodded at me and I gulped, resigning myself to whatever happened next. We both clicked the green icon and accepted the call. A single voice answered, and once more it came, not from our phones but from every square inch of space around us. It was a single voice, whining and high-pitched. The syllables sounded not like organic speech, 
but like someone had stretched and manipulated audio of billions of people screaming until it became coherent language. Again, only two words, but they were enough for both Gran and I to get on our bikes and cycle as far away from my house as we possibly could. Hello, boys. My folks were the ones who reported us missing. They found us hiding in our shack in the woods. That one we had naively believed our parents didn't know about. It was when we started to explain why we ran that stuff went sideways quickly. We had expected the cops not to believe us, and we never thought that they would place us under house arrest and cut both our houses off from the internet. We were both dumbfounded when they confiscated our phones and told us every device we owned was getting taken in for evidence. And we were real surprised when one of the cops punched Gran in the face and told us, in no uncertain terms, that just because we were kids didn't mean we couldn't get, and I quote, dealt with. When I found out about the bribe money to keep shut, I didn't know what I felt more, shocked at how much it was, or disgusted that my parents had accepted it. They don't believe me, by the way. They're upset that we tried to leave town at, and again, I quote, but from my dad now, a time when the community needs to come together and not do anything to rock the boat. That was all a week ago, and I haven't slept since. I also haven't heard from Grant. I have been watching the news, though. Seventeen more have gone in the last five days. Seventeen more people burned away and consumed by whatever those things are. And our police, at the very least, are in on it, keeping it covered up. Not just keeping it covered up, but allowing it to happen. I know that it runs deeper, though, and it has to. What else would those scientists in hazmat suits keep showing up outside my house at night? Why else would a black van be parked across the street every morning, noon, and night? Why else would three police officers resign due to a conflict of conscience and die under mysterious circumstances the night afterward? Whatever is happening in my town, it's big and it's being kept quiet. Not only kept quiet, it's being allowed to happen. I stole my dad's work phone to post this and to hoping that it gets out there, that it makes it past the blacklist that they've got in place. That's part of the reason I've admitted the name of where I actually live, though no doubt I have scrapers mining every search engine for it. I mean, come on, it probably won't work, but I'm plumb out of ideas and honestly, way beyond desperate at this point. And this isn't a send help now post because the help is half the problem. This is so you can be on alert. If you get wind of anything that sounds even remotely like SHM, skip town, leave. Especially if you live in a pokey little cult-like quiet town like mine. I don't care what you think of your neighbors. Forget everything you know about your friends, your family. When stuff like this hits the fan, they will play along with the lie. As I've said, this doesn't seem to have spread beyond the time limits so far. Whatever those beings are, they'd picked here as their hunting ground. They could move, though, or there could be more of them. Who knows how many ghost towns and dwindling populations are actually whole communities being deliberately fed to these things. The U.S. is a big place. You really think anyone would notice if Podunkville in some random county vanished slowly over a few years? Well, that's what's happening here, and nobody around me is trying to stop it. My parents, the news, the police, the mayor, 
everyone with any kind of authority are doing what they can to make sure that we sit tight and let it happen. There is no such thing as spontaneous human malnutrition. There never has been and there never will be. But because the idiots around me refuse to stop insisting otherwise, I'm going to get consumed by... No, screw it. Screw the house arrest. I can't stay here. Those things know who I am and know where I am. They'll be coming for me sooner or later. House arrest, I don't even care. I've got nowhere to go but... Jesus Christ, that footage. Dying alone and starving in the forest would be much better than, than that. Dad, if you're reading this, I'm sorry. I don't want to know what it feels like to have eyes that burn like dying suns. I'm not going out the way that Doug's mom did. The way I know you're hiding from me that Grant already is done. I can't take this madness anymore, Dad. You know that I'm right about all of this. I'm sorry, I truly am. But you and I both need to accept that. It's not my fault you decided to fall down this rabbit hole. As for the rest of you, wish me luck. You might see me cycling through your town one day, who knows. I'm posting this and then I'm hitting the road. It's about an hour's journey between my house and the edge of town. If I can push it, I can make it before my dad and the cops realize what I've done. I'm taking a risk by posting this, I know. But that's the thing. There's always a chance that those things might reach me first. Heck, they might even be reading this right now. They've already proved they can mess with our phones. It wouldn't be a stretch if they were watching me type this right. No, I can't think like that. Gotta focus. Gotta remember that as risky as leaving is, the risk of staying is always higher. It's a certainty. I'm going to be keeping my head down so you won't hear from me again. But keep your fingers crossed for me, please. Oh, and remember... If and when your local Chip Dallas facsimile starts telling you not to worry about a mysterious new disease called spontaneous human malnutrition, don't believe a word that they say. It doesn't exist, and you have every reason to panic. My friends and I discovered a top secret experiment while camping, written by Rube Project 9. The campfire was warm. I liked this setting. Seth and Colton were on either side of me, surrounding the fire, staring at it intensely just like me. We were all alone in the forest. I told them that I needed to get away from my family. I loved being in the wilderness, and though I was often a solitary person, my best buds were the only people that could comfort me in times like this. Thank you guys. I know sometimes I'm not easy to be around with my moods and everything, but this truly does mean a lot to me, and coming out here to accompany me in the forest. The forest that we were in was vast, but we were on the edge and near the trail and if we got in any danger, we came prepared with tons of camping gear and a GPS, plus some physical maps too. Strangely though, this small area seemed to be unmarked on the map. However, I figured we didn't need to worry since we were prepared for everything else. It also helped that it was January and no one seemed to bother with being out here, since they were all seemingly wrapped up in their New Year's resolutions. Seth responded, Hey, of course, Maddox, my low bro. 
He rubbed his knuckles on my hair semi-affectionately, and I pushed his hand away since I really liked physical contact, especially out of the blue. I stared at Colton awaiting a response. He might have been the bag of rocks for brains in our group, but he was my friend and that was all that mattered to me. Hey Colton, you there, man. I waved my hand in front of his face. His eyes were dull and distant as if he was zoning out. And then he suddenly snapped up and exclaimed, I'm gotcha, sure, I'm here. He laughed, content to see me alarmed by his jump scare. What the heck, man? Whatever, Colt, let's see if we can get some stories going. It's getting dark out. It's the perfect time for some stories, don't you guys think? I said while discerning their reactions. I wanted to escape my bleak reality by at least telling each other some stories. Especially scary ones. Colton's ears perked up when he heard that. Alright, I got one. Prepare your ears for this one. It was a late summer night. Three guys around our age went out for a little late night snack. They had hopped in their truck and along the way they spotted some, let's say, strange things. Colton looked around at Seth and I to gauge our reactions. I had no reaction, but Seth was vaguely curious. Colton continued. The guys had seen fires burning in the distance while driving, but they couldn't tell from what. As they got closer and closer to the store, the fires seemed to get closer, as if they were moving in on them. This was in the middle of nowhere, so seeing fires was odd, but not the oddest thing in the world for them. But to see them move was definitely out of the ordinary. The fires started moving at a much quicker pace, gaining on the truck. The guys were getting scared at this point, so of course they sped up. The fires, however, spread to the road and stopped in front of the truck, so the guy driving the truck decided to stop. The other guys were confused as to why he would do that. The guy driving says, We cannot drive it. We've been driving for 15 minutes now, and the fires have matched our pace even when we speed up. I think I'm going to go check to see what it is. The other two guys in the truck were shot. They couldn't believe that he decided to confront what appeared to be fires that can move and keep up with the truck. As he jumps out, he seems to be in a kind of trance, and they see him disappear into the dark. After about 10 minutes, they start to worry, and they decide to go out and look for him. To their surprise... He's burnt to an absolute crisp. They try to run back into the truck fearing for their safety, but the doors are locked. They feel a heat behind them. They turn around to see a fire in the shape of a man, and that was the last that anyone had heard from them. Apparently, some people witnessed this, and that's how the legend began. I paused before offering my opinion. I glanced over at Seth, who seemed a lot more visibly shaken than me. Colton, sensing both of our reactions, seemed a bit upset at my indifference. He frowned at my expressionless face. I then said what I thought about his story. Not that great, man. Honestly, we're out here in the woods and you would think anything would scare us out here. But that was truly a weak offering that you gave us. The ending was pitiful and I could see it coming from a mile away. I tend to be very blunt with my opinions, especially when I'm not exactly in the best mood. 
and Colton scoffed. Alright, you know what. If you're not scared, how about you tell us a story then? He elbowed Seth while smirking and waiting to see my response. I decided against it. It was getting late and the sun was beyond the skyline. Now nah, let's call it a night. We can maybe hike the trail tomorrow night. I'm kind of tired and I'd rather not do anything else right now. I'm more of a morning person anyway. If you guys want to stay up, feel free to though. Seth and Colton decided they would stay up for a few more and I headed into the tent to get some shut-eye. I closed my eyes and tried to imagine tranquility. The forest was quiet, barring the birds and small insects that would stay up into the night. But those noises functioned like ASMR for me. It helped me finally have peace of mind. It must have been no longer than 20 minutes when I heard Seth come barging into my tent. I expected this sort of thing from Colton, but not from Seth. I shakily sat up. Dude, what the heck was that for? Seth looked wide-eyed. Matic, we heard sounds coming from deeper in the forest, but it didn't sound like any animal that we know. We don't think we should set up camp here if we don't at least check it out and make sure it's not someone or something else doing suspicious activities that we wouldn't want while we're trying to sleep, man. I thought about it for a second, and he was right. Even though I wanted to sleep, sleeping in was a dumb alternative. Besides, I wasn't scared of whatever was out there anyway. Whatever it was, I would just shove my earphones in to accompany them while we checked out the weird sounds. We gathered some supplies and headed towards the clearing in the forest. We started heading towards where these sounds were seeming to come from. I was hardly paying attention. I doubted it was anything out of the ordinary. I let them gain a few feet ahead of me. I started daydreaming of the life that I envisioned for myself. And people didn't really understand me. Not even my friends really. I wanted to be more than this small town. I wanted to be an engineer and take my talents to new heights. They thought I gamed for no reason, but no. I coded in my spare time. It was something that I barely told anyone. Seth and Colton were starting to speed up and get further and further away. And they seemed rather enthralled in whatever they were pursuing. And Colton yelped out and jumped to do some thick bushes and Seth reached in to go after him. I shook myself from my trance and started running towards where they had disappeared into. Guys, where'd you go? Did you find anything? I ran up to the bushes and pushed them apart to see. The weirdest sight that I'd ever laid my eyes upon. Seth and Colton were standing with their backs turned to me and swaying back and forth. I tapped them and went, Yo, you guys feeling alright? Is this a prank or a joke? I looked further past them to see a gathering of what looked like naked people. They're surrounding a fire and running around it in a circle as if practicing some kind of ritual. I glanced at Seth and Colton's faces and they had white pupils. I waved my hand in front of their faces but could elicit no response. I gulped. Not one to normally feel afraid in circumstances like this. But this was a peculiar circumstance. I decided to head down there. I couldn't shake them from their trance, so I had no choice but to confront these naked folks, even if it was against my wishes at the moment to do so. I walked up to one of the people circling the fire and I reached out to tap them, 
Nay spun around quickly before I could even touch them, as if they could sense my presence. They had literally no facial features. I gasped from shock at the sight. They had no mouth, eyes, and nose, eyebrows, and nothing at all. It was a smooth, bare face looking back at me. The one facing me emitted a high-pitched frequency, as if they were in defense mode for me approaching them, and the others turned around as if on alert and emitted the same sound. I covered my ears to shield myself from the pain. I turned around to see Seth and Colton shaken from the trance. I guess the frequency had awoken them. I ran towards them and yelled, Run! We have to get the heck out of here! They spotted these strange creatures behind me and wasted no time and sprinted towards the bushes to push towards the path. Once I caught up to them, they breathily let out the words of desperation. They questioned me one by one. First Colton who came by to no surprise to me. He was the most cowardly of us all, but he was still my friend, and this situation was unexplainable anyway. Dude, what were those things? They, they looked like they had no face. He yelped while gasping for air, while sprinting forwards through the thickets and bushes in the forest. Next came Seth. We should have never come here, man. I told you that it was a bad idea. I heard stories about the forest. People disappear out here. But you never want to listen, man. Why come here after hearing that stuff? Seth was always like that. Blaming others for his problems or anything that ever went wrong. I sighed before answering them both. I don't know how to answer any of those questions. I think our priority right now is finding a way out of here. We should have made it out of the forest by now. But it seems as if either we're lost or something about the path has changed. Which I would go as far to say isn't far-fetched. Considering we just saw people without any faces. I grabbed both of their shoulders and halted them in their tracks. We can't go any further until we figure out a way to evaluate our surroundings. They looked at me in fear, but both nodded in agreement. I couldn't tell if what was in front of us was even real, but I had to take it as a fact. So I went with that as the first established basis or else I would drive myself crazy. The next was that if we traveled in a straight line, that it was maybe our best odds out of the forest. But then again, it could throw us deeper into the forest and leave us here for the night. I had one ace up my sleeve though. That ace was a compass. I always came prepared because I hiked alone often. Even if this place was changing, I knew that our camp was located on the west side of the forest. That could never change at least due to the landscape. If it were the forest itself changing, or the brush and pathways, our camp would be in the same spot no matter what. All I had to do was use the compass to locate our camp. Even though I couldn't pinpoint our exact location, I could use a narrow circle to guess what vicinity we were in. I located that on the map. Barians helped with this as well. I tried my best to scan for any landmark that I could recognize any hills, rivers, etc. If the forest was truly changing anyway, this would allow it to be much easier for me to locate a way out of here. I spotted a huge hill outside of the forest that could never move and decided to use that as my landmark. I found the hill on the map and decided to use my best of knowledge of bearings and lining it up with my compass to figure out where in the map we were. Once I did, 
I told Seth and Colton and said that we had to travel in the direction that I was leading them to get out, and we started heading that way. It was like the forest sense that we were trying to get out. It started moving in front of us. The bushes moved to block our path and we stumbled and fell, and we heard footsteps approaching. We all slowly turned around while sitting on the ground to face what we knew was coming. The naked and no-faced people were behind us and they were bare-skinned and hairless. They looked like they were straight out of a factory, and they were made of Play-Doh. I have no idea what they were actually made of. They didn't seem human, or even organic for that. They continued to emit a weird frequency. I picked up a rock from nearby and smashed it over the heads of one of the beans and its head surprisingly dented inwards, like it was made out of some kind of synthetic material. I turned back in disgust, and I looked at Seth and Colton. They both reeled in horror. They were at a loss for words. We gotta get the heck out of here, man, Colton screamed. We started running full speed and we ran through bushes, riverbanks. We saw animals, but they all looked extremely fake. Something was off about this entire place. We kept trying to find our campsite, but since we were scrambling now, it was getting much darker and the hill that we previously saw was nowhere in sight anymore. We ran and ran and ran until we ran into what looked like some sort of building. And finally, I felt like we had a chance to get out of here. Seth started knocking on the side of it since it had no apparent doors or windows. Hey, we need some help. Please, we're stuck in this forest and we can't find a way out. No response. Not that it was a surprise, really. The building seemed closed off for any sort of visitors. However, there were strange sounds that started to emanate from the building. Like buzzings and beeps as if it were an operational machine. Maybe this wasn't a building after all. I turned to my friends. Guys, maybe this isn't a real building. Maybe it's some kind of facility. I wonder if it's how these weird creatures came to be. How this whole weird forest came to be. Seth looked up at the facility with confusion and then understanding. Okay, I have a plan then. We can't keep banging on this building like that. Maybe this is really the key to getting out of here. If people are doing weird experiments in the middle of this godforsaken forest, then they have to come out eventually to test the results. Colton was shaking and trembling. I agree, man. We gotta do something to get the heck out of here. Maybe that's our best bet. So that's what we decided to do. The creatures were nowhere in sight for now, so we hid in some shrubs and waited. Hours eventually passed, and it was starting to get much darker out. Bugs were making their nightly rounds, and the air was tense and rigid. Colton was falling asleep, but Seth was awake and alert. As for me, I was indifferent. I had no idea what to think. The creatures had made an appearance since we last saw them, and we had no idea what to do. I decided to take matters into my own hands. Screw this, I'm going up to this stupid building. I have a feeling they'll react to what I'm about to do. Seth reacted in shock, instinctively asking, What are you doing? We're supposed to wait for them to come out. I rushed up to the building and found rocks the size of my head. These rocks were heavy but enough to do damage to that building if I could build enough momentum. I started circling around, swinging the rock in my hand, getting ready to launch it at the building. 
when I heard a whoosh sound come from the direction of it. I saw a slit in the side of the building that was open. I gestured to Seth and he nudged Colton awake, and they both ran over and were equally as shocked as me. The door stood ajar, mist flowing out of it. It was dark and devoid lay beyond it. I gulped but edged closer with Seth and Colton not far behind. As we stepped in, the door slammed shut. Alarms started blaring and the room shifted to a bright red hue. We all shielded our eyes from the bright lights. I had to admit, for the first time ever, I was truly terrified. Watching on the monitor, I couldn't help but feel a little bit sorry for these three young lads. They were a part of something far greater than they could even comprehend. This forest was grounds for testing and ways to figure out a way to save the world from a looming threat that they couldn't even begin to understand. Those human things out there without faces were just symptoms of the problem, not the actual problem. Since they were exposed, they could never leave now. They would end up just like them. A sorry way to go. Unable to speak, see, hear, or experience the world at all. A diabolical disease indeed. Now, professor, we have contained them. What's the next move? A question came from a subordinate of mine. I thought about it for a while. Perhaps we could study them a bit. We hadn't collected specimens before they reached a critical containment stage in which we could no longer keep them within the facility. Keep them under strict observation and don't tell them anything. I want to run some tests and I have no idea how they stumbled into this forest. It's highly secure from the rest of the population. This particular area of the forest is in fact a pocket dimension as you know. So it's highly unlikely that they could have stumbled across it by chance. But yet here they are. This is an anomaly for certain. There must be something unique about them and we'll figure it out. I shut off the monitors. These three boys would be here for an indefinite period of time. I couldn't risk them infecting anyone else. It's sad their lives had to turn out this way. But hopefully it wouldn't all be for waste. Maybe they were the key to solving all of this. I asked my nephew to draw the scariest thing that he could imagine. I wish I hadn't. Written by Jeb Stewart. A child's imagination is the most powerful thing on this planet. I've always believed this, and I've always encouraged kids, especially my nephew, to pursue and delve into his artistic side. Sometimes it can be difficult, even for adults, to describe or draw what they're feeling on the inside, what they're seeing in their mind's eye. Even though his shaky, fresh hands could yield goofy results, I never put him down or laugh at his attempts to bring the creatures in his mind to life. It'll only get better. The things these little guys can bring into the world are unbelievable, endlessly creative and infinitely valuable. At times it can be frustrating, believe me, when we're working on math problems or other schoolwork, as he seems to be lost in his thoughts in his own little world. My nephew Kid has become totally invested in art, in drawing and painting, since I had introduced him at such a young age. I was basically a parent to Kid at this point. 
just him and I in my apartment since his parents passed away three years ago. He was four at the time when my sisters, my poor sisters, stupid freaking husband drove into a telephone pole in a drunken rage. They both died instantly. The tiny Honda that my parents had loaned them caught fire and was a smoking heap by the time that authorities had arrived. It's been a long three years. A long three years of both joy and sorrow as I raised their child as my own. It was a great blessing to see my sister and Kit, to see her eyes and her smile to some extent. Though on the bad days it could be just as much of a curse, nearly bringing me to tears, making me want to curse the world for taking her away far too early. But I love Kit, always have and always will. Though my love has been tested to its very limits recently, and not in the way that you might think, no, he hasn't been overly difficult to deal with or anything even remotely close to what one may think of as bad behavior as far as a seven-year-old goes. I just wanted to preface this story by letting you, dear reader, know that my nephew isn't a bad person. He simply let his imagination get the best of him. It happens to the best of us, as far as I'm concerned. The events I'm going to tell you about all began to unfold one week ago to this day. Although the situation has been dealt with, to the best of my knowledge, I believe that it's only fair to inform you of the ramifications of allowing a child to explore the deepest depth of their imagination. This story, whether you want to believe me or not, is completely truthful in all of its outrageousness, in all of its horror. If you are faint of heart, I beg you not to read on. If you're laying alone in bed with the curtains drawn and the lights out, then please be prepared to feel watched. Whatever it was that afflicted us still lives on somewhere watching. Like I said, it all began about a week ago. It was a dreary, rainy Tuesday afternoon. I sat and typed away on my laptop, mindless work for an office that sat a few states over. Working from home had been a blessing. No need to pay babysitters when I was here all day anyways. A kid had just gotten home from school about an hour ago and was sitting at the kitchen table with me, drawing on a large pad of paper. Occasionally, he would stop to ask me what my favorite drawing of his was, or to ask me what I was doing. I didn't mind his questions. Sometimes it broke up the monotony of my work, though it could get a bit distracting. You know, I have something cool you could draw for me, I told him. I wish that I'd never gotten that idea, or at the very least, I'd never shared it with him. He peered up from the mess of scribbles which littered the page and furrowed his brow. What? he asked, giggling a bit. You see, I've always been a fan of all things horror-related. Those old campy movies like Halloween and Friday the 13th were some of my favorites. Kit wasn't into them like I was. He would usually hide under a blanket on the couch or go to bed early one night, put something like that on TV. Draw me the scariest thing that you can imagine, I said, grinning at him. Truthfully, I expected him to turn his nose up to the idea, but I was surprised that he agreed. After a long while of wringing his hands and rubbing his temples, he finally put the pencil to the pad and began his endeavor. It was a bit unnerving in a way, 
how he seemed afraid of whatever creature he might conjure up and bring to life. It seemed cute at the time, but looking back, that should have been my first sign. The next 20 minutes or so went by slowly, as you would expect when working on spreadsheets. Kit raised the pencil up, brushed the page free of any eraser shavings, and turned the pad for me to see. I turned my attention from the bright computer screen to my nephew's creation, which took a moment for the details to sink into my foggy brain. I was taken aback by how well drawn it was, amongst all the scribbles and half-finished drawings, which seemed to shroud the being in a sort of shadow, was the creature that he had eventually named Grunkus. Its body was like a massive heap of melted wax, a slit or rather a mouth, running along the length of the torso, opened just enough for two long, striped arms to poke out from. A pair of huge, buggy eyes sat on either side of its mouth, most likely because its real head had no eyes. The longer that I looked at it, soaking in the details, the more unease seemed to wash over me. I peered up at my nephew who seemed to share the same sentiment. His expression was like he had been caught doing something he shouldn't have been doing. His face almost seemed drained of its color. I looked back down at his drawing, studying it further. From the top of the waxy pile emerged a long, spindly neck, attached to an oversized head. Its head was triangular in shape, like it had been smashed in different spots. Its face had two black holes for eyes and a thin smile, which ran from one side of its face to the other. The creature's lips were sewn together, Long strands of patchy hair laden slicked back piles on its head, accompanied by a devilish, pointy beard protruding from its chin. Oddly creative and oddly terrifying, especially coming from my young nephew. What's this, buddy? I asked hesitantly. He bit at his lip and tapped the table lightly in light, successive patterns. The color had yet to return to his face which exacerbated the anxiety he seemed to be giving off. I set my hand on his shoulder which seemed to snap him out of whatever trance he was in. He peered up at me. He's creepy, was all Kit could manage. I smiled at him and squeezed his shoulder, hoping to ease his anxiety. He looks like a melted candle. I like him, I said peering down at the creepy illustration before me. Kit smiled back at me, the dark cloud looming over the room seemingly dissipated a bit. What's his name? I asked another question I wished that I hadn't asked. A new wave of anxiety seemed to set over my nephew which put me on edge. I don't know if I should say, he replied. Dread seemed to flood through my veins at his response causing my heart to pound. Why shouldn't he say? Is he seeing or feeling something that I'm not? No, no, this is ridiculous. I'm playing into his imagination way too much. At least that's what I thought at the time. Oh, come on, I said before questioning him further. What's the harm? I chuckled, albeit nervously. Kit took a little time to reply his eyes burning into mine with deadly seriousness. He wouldn't like that, Kit blurted out. That caught me off guard. Was this some sort of game? 
Well, like I said before, kids scare as easily. A child's imagination is so strong, so powerful that it can rule over their real life. It's just a drawing, buddy. It can't hurt you. Even if it could, you know I'm here to protect you. I said while jokingly flexing my bicep. I'm not the biggest guy in the world or even the neighborhood for the matter, but it made me happy knowing Kit felt safe around me. Mia rolled his eyes a bit and laughed at me. His name is Grunku. A crash accompanied by the sound of glass breaking emanated from the living room, drowning my nephew's voice out. The house went deadly still, alarmingly quiet. My nephew looked up at me and whimpered, his eyes the size of saucers. When I went into the living room to see what had happened, to find that it was just a painting that fell from the wall, I could have never imagined that it was just the beginning of my week from hell. The rest of that night went relatively smoothly. I made dinner for myself and Kit, eager to keep his mind off of the drawing. We watched some TV, some cartoons as he requested until he fell asleep. I curled him from the couch to the bed in his room, tucking him in for the night. I stood up from his bed, a chill running down my spine as though I were being watched. I looked all around his room and noticed the closet door was slightly ajar, which isn't unusual though. I could have sworn that it was shut when I had walked in. I stepped once, then twice and three times with a supreme caution, before deciding to use the flashlight on my phone to illuminate my path. A toy squeaked beneath my foot as I shuffled further, causing my heart to drop down into my stomach. Come on, Dustin, you're acting ridiculous, I thought, straightening my back and walking with authority towards the closet door. The light from my phone flooded into the closet, revealing a heap of dirty laundry suffocating the basket. I peered upward at the shelf, and that's when I saw, when I saw it for the first time. Even though it had deep, empty sockets where its eyes should be, I could feel its gaze burrowing itself into my being. Its dark eyes were even more prominent against the pasty pale skin, which was pulled tight around its skull. I blinked once and it was still there. I blinked twice and knew the specter was very much real. I let out a whimper and then a scream as it smiled at me, the stitches fusing its mouth together pulling violently, tearing the skin. Oh, Dusty Wusty, you want to play? It was just above a whisper, its voice dry and rough like a desert. Everything went dark and like a blink. I opened my eyes once more in my bed. Thin slivers of light cascaded over the covers of my bed, the morning sunlight begging to be allowed in. I sat up in my bed, the air felt cold against my clammy, sweaty skin. That felt way too real to just be a dream. I looked over at the nightstand, my phone sitting perfectly in the middle of it. Odd. The clock on my phone read 11.30am, which is extremely late for me. My guts felt all twisted and knotted up, trying to digest these sick dreams that I had endured. Hopping up from my bed, I had to check on Kit to convince myself, to convince myself that whatever I had seen last night wasn't real. I ran out of my room and down the hallway, 
Kit's door at the other end, just where it had been since he had moved in with me. I threw the door open, stopping in my tracks to find that the door led to a closet. A barren closet. Nothing but a couple of navy blue shirts hanging off to the side. None of it made sense. I ran from door to door in my house, but to no avail. Kit wasn't here. It's like he never was. I ran back to my room and made a beeline for my phone. I had to have answers. I picked up the device and it responded immediately, showing only one notification. A text. From my sister. I felt dizzy and sick, nearly on the verge of some sort of mental break. Like I was on an elevator falling uncontrollably, impossibly deep. Her name was right there on my phone, as it had frequently been before she, well, I think before she died. No, she definitely died. Holly, it read above her text. I felt sick. The message was innocent enough. Hey, are you still watching Kit today? I wanted to call her and scream into the phone. Scream at her. Scream at whatever horrible prank this had to be. I've been watching Kit every day since you died, is what I really wanted to yell, but I began feeling so unsure of myself, as though these last few years had been an awful prolonged fever dream. I mean, like this happens, living life in a dream. It's just not supposed to happen to me. I responded simply, Yeah, bring him whenever. I'm glad that I could masquerade behind a text message and hide how confused and scared I really felt. My entire body shook and screamed at me that something was horribly off. Despite this, I continued on like it was any other day. Maybe it was some sort of shock response, but I continued on to my office to log in for work. After a while, I had gained some amount of composure, brewing a pot of coffee and beginning a fresh batch of spreadsheets. I couldn't help but flinch every time I noticed a certain coffee mug that was seemingly out of place, or a chair that just sat a little too far from the kitchen table. I had bought two of everything for Kit and I. I'm pretty sure I did at least. Two sets of silverware, two sets of bowls, and two sets of everything. But they were just all gone. The house felt terribly empty. I decided that I was going to confront my sister whenever she had arrived, whether that lands me in a mental hospital or one of these circles of hell. I just had to figure out what was going on. Too many things were just wrong. Most of them I could brush off, but even the name of the company I worked for was completely different than I remember. I mean, come on. How does Sherman SSC become Jim's Shipping Co.? I mean, that and Kit was gone too. The kid that I've spent every day of my life with for the last three years. I peered down at the coffee mug sitting precariously by my keyboard. The mug itself was filled nearly to the brim. The brown liquid dangerously close to spilling over. I brought the mug to my nose and inhaled deeply. The intoxicating aroma providing a momentary relief. I took a sip and spit it out almost immediately. The taste was like nothing else, absolutely vile. I looked back down at the mug and shouldn't have been as surprised as I was to find my coffee had turned into a black, tar-like substance. What the? No, this is ridiculous. I yelled out to nobody. 
I stood up from my seat and half walked, half ran to my car. I don't really know where I was planning to go, but I knew that I had to get the heck away from my apartment. I made it to the kitchen, and maybe just a whisper of my finger had touched my keys when the most incredible feeling took a hold of me. It was like the best high one could imagine, as though I were both drunk from the finest alcohol anyone could offer, while also being in the midst of a satisfying mushroom trip. It was the type of high where you felt warm and cozy, like you could hug and cuddle the chair and feel the love radiating back off of it. All the pain, worry, and doubt had fled away, as though they were miles behind me in the rear view. One small part of my brain, the deepest little bit, way in the back of my skull was still screaming at me, telling me that it was all the facade. Get away, it seemed to be saying. No, no, I think I'll stay. In my drunken, drug-induced state, I decided my best course of action was to take a bath. You know, always the best choice when you can barely walk or function whatsoever. I'm not entirely sure how I got to my bath or even how I drew any water, but when I got in, it felt as though my being was consumed by warm honey, absolute bliss, and pure nirvana. If I had closed my eyes for any longer than a second, I would surely fall asleep. Each time I lazily opened my eyes, the tub seemed to fill more and more with the same tar-like substance from earlier. I couldn't move and I didn't want to move. It felt so good. I slowly shifted my gaze over to the side of the tub. The black plasma snaking its way up over the edge and out of the bathroom from underneath the door. I can't tell you what it was that compelled me to follow the slime's trail, or how it gave me the strength to hoist myself from the tub and pursue it. But whatever it was, it wanted me to find it. My steps were lackadaisical and uncoordinated, Sheer curiosity pulling me forward. If it wasn't for the substance which had intoxicated me earlier, which at this point had consumed me even further, I most likely would have dropped dead of a heart attack at the creature standing in my living room. It was Grunkus, exactly as my nephew had drawn it the day prior. Except now it stood there, as real as you or I. It pulled me closer, thousands of whispers and promises of love, of warmth, of acceptance filled my ears. I threw myself into the wax-like body of the beast, sinking a couple of inches into its warm goo. My mind, my body were in complete euphoria. I felt one with it, one with its love, with its mind. I smashed my face into the sludgy body of the Grunkus licking and slurping up the delicious juices that it excreted. Its long neck craned down towards me and I could feel its breath escaping through its sewn-up lips, its warm, sweet breath. Wake up, Dusty Westy, it said, its voice deeper and more full this time around. Just as I had before, when I saw it in the closet for the first time, I awoke in a cold sweat this time fully aware and bound to a folding chair. My vision was incredibly blurry, as though I were a newborn using them for the first time, though I could make out two figures sitting next to me, and one massive heap lying before me. Oh, Dusty! I recognized the voice immediately. It was Holly, my long-dead sister, or so I thought. 
As time went on and my vision began to clear up more, I could make out Holly and Kit sitting right next to me. Kit looked petrified, his eyes huge and teary. The person who sounded like my sister smiled at me with devilish delight. As I said, it sounded like her, but I knew that it wasn't her after looking more closely. Everything about the woman sitting next to me was off. Her eyes were sloppy and off-centered. Her nose was much too large and hooked to be holly. But the most telling thing was the huge black pits where her eyes should have been. Tonight, Dusty, you and little Kit will be joining us. She cooed at me, and giggling in between words as she spoke. Don't you dare touch him! I screamed back. I'll kill you! I yelled perpetually until my vocal cords were torn up and shot. My anger intensified as the woman screamed to try and stifle her laughter at my attempts to get free. Kit brought his knees to his chest and had his eyes smashed shut, repeating over and over the same phrase, as though he were resigned to his fate. I want you, Mommy. Please help us, Mommy, please, he kept saying. Oh, she can't help you. You're all my... A blinding flash of blue light burst through the chest of the wicked woman sitting next to me. In an instant, she crumpled to the floor, into a pile of dust. As the light began to dissipate, it revealed the outline of another person. Holly, the real Holly and my sister. As I've said before multiple times, a child's imagination is the most powerful thing on the planet. It can be the most wicked thing and the most beautiful thing. Wicked in that it could bring a fictional horror creation to life. Beautiful in that it could bring my beloved sister back to save us. Another blue glow began to pull at the base of the Grunkus's waxy body, growing in strength. The wretched creature groaned and screamed in agony. If I can kill you once, I'll do it again, it yelped, nearly engulfed in the blue light. Much like the woman had moments before. The Grunkus melted to the floor and turned to ash. I wish I could tell you more. I wish I could say that the nightmare is over now, though I'd be lying to you. I never got to see the woman in blue, but I'm completely certain that it was my sister. It's going to take months, years, maybe a lifetime of counseling for both Kit and I to return to normal, but we each have each other again, and that's the most important thing to me. It's interesting, what the Grunkus said before collapsing into nothingness. I killed you once and I'll kill you again, I recall it saying. But I have a feeling that the Grunkus isn't entirely made up. Something tells me it's based on my late brother-in-law. I interviewed a Sin Eater during a criminal investigation. Written by Ten Minute Horror. It was just about time for my fourth post dinner coffee when Wally, useless colleague that he was, slithered up to the edge of my cubicle. I heard the call come over the wire earlier. Wally and his partner Donahue, who was out sick this week, found it on their laps. The report was for a lone homicide. It was quiet this month, so I dipped back into some old murder books. 
I was knocking on doors all week pursuing an ongoing conveyor belt of dead ends, quite literally, and was starting to regret deciding on the case that I chose. So, the sight of Pitt stand wildly this time at least was more than welcomed, but he seemed off. Watley was normally 300 pounds of a complete idiot in a 5 pound bag. Not now though. His shoulders were up, his eyes were uneasy, and his voice lacked any authority. Watley asked if I was free to come sit in on his perp, maybe pipe in if I felt any leads. I mean why not? The cold case was a frozen shot and the rest of my night was empty. I joined Watley and asked him for the attending officer's report. I quickly scanned it. Homicide at a wake. That's a new one. Watley handed me another file, this one for the perp. I opened the file and found myself staring at the headshot of a man whose eyes saw right through me. They were hypnotic. Even in black and white, they radiated and made you feel like someone was on the other side of the photograph. I had seen all kinds of eyes on the streets. Eyes of the soldiers back from the Middle East. Hollow and distant. Like they stayed overseas and never returned with the body to which they were attached. I had seen eyes of crackheads at criminals and even worse than that... I had seen the eyes of dead people and animals. But this man's eyes were black holes, like they contained all the death that I had ever seen and more. I felt a chill up my back. His name was William Calder. He had immigrated here five years ago. He's 64 years old, though looked to be in his early 50s at the most. Occupation is... I stopped reading. What the heck? I handed the file back to Watley, my thumb under the words. He eyed them, knowing what I must be thinking. Watley shrugged sheepishly. My eyes drifted back to the report. Calder's occupation was listed as Sin Eater. That was also a new one. Apparently Calder hadn't requested a lawyer and said that he would be representing himself, if need be. This man keeps getting more interesting. Wally was waiting for me to finish. I closed the file and he nervously fixed his glasses before we entered. Calder sat confidently, hands clasped together on his lap. He had a shaved head and pale, almost translucent skin. His eyes in person made you wish that you were looking at his picture and not the living, breathing human before you. He didn't blink. No wonder Wadley couldn't handle this guy. Even I felt my hackles go up. I introduced myself, as did he, and I could detect a slight Scottish tinge but it seemed to have layers of other accents over it, of which I could not identify. I started in, asking him to explain what he was doing at the wake and his relation to the family. He spoke perfectly. Each sentence came out fluidly, with no pauses or ums or eyes. 
Calder knew the family, the Finnegans, because he had been hired on by them to provide posthumous services to the deceased. I inquired what exactly that meant, and the circus began. Calder explained that as a sin eater, he would cleanse the dead of their mortal sins before they passed over to the afterlife. This was done to avoid hell, or worse, wander the earth as a lost spirit. Typically, this was done at the funeral, with food and drink being passed over the body, symbolizing the absorption of the sin. The food and drink would all be consumed by the sin eater, who would bear the sins of the deceased after performing a short prayer that would contain the transgressions to himself. Judging by Calder's lavish dress, he appeared to be handsomely rewarded. He knew the game and he conned it well. The Finnegans wanted the patriarch of the family to be absolved sooner than the funeral, and with good reason. Secrets about the grandfather had come out. He was dangerous and responsible for domestic atrocities the family didn't want to elaborate on or to allow to come to light. I asked Calder what sins the grandfather had carried, but he refused to answer, claiming that although he had been excommunicated by the Roman Catholics, he still had his oath of confidentiality to those who confessed, living or dead. I asked why he had been excommunicated, and he said priests were supposed to administer the last rites to the dying, and what Calder did ran counter to that territory. And all sounded like the ramblings of a crackhead, but he wasn't a crackhead. Not like one that I had met. Calder spoke too well, too perfectly concise. The things he said were confusing, but they somehow made sense. He still hadn't blinked. I'm not up to date on my Bible jibber-jabber, but I knew Otley was. I could see that his knee was trembling under the table. I asked him if he could grab Calder some water, and Watley laughed happily. It was just me and Mr. Sin Eater now. I asked him how someone comes to be in his occupation. Calder spoke of studying in monasteries and temples. He had lived for over a decade in the Yerba Valley in Tibet, where he was engaged in the practice of incarnation and the transmigration of spirits. He became a practitioner of sky burials. He went on to explain the area that he lived in in Tibet. There was no soil or dirt or trees on these stony mountains. You couldn't dig a grave or cut down wood to burn in a cremation. So they would take the body to the highest peak and disassemble it to decompose while being exposed to the elements. It sounded a lot like they chopped up their family or friends' bodies and left the pieces to be picked apart by vultures, but hey, what do us Westerners know anyway? Back to the reality of the situation. Mr. Calder had killed a 17-year-old boy at the boy's grandfather's wake. I asked him what had happened to cause that. For me to understand... I would have to be a different man with vastly different experiences, explained Calder. I responded that the judge would be less willing to hear what he had said than I was. He said that that didn't matter. 
The only thing that mattered was three gentlemen would be arrived in the lobby any minute. And it was in ours, both mine, the precinct, and the neighborhood's best interest to allow them into the room. I told him if the three men showed up asking for him to be released, they would be joining him in a cell momentarily. He responded that no, they wouldn't, because what was happening was beyond my control, and the longer I prevented the final act of the ritual, the more danger it was for Calder, me, and everyone around us. He elaborated further. The boy at the wake, a distant teenage cousin, had eaten some of the bread that passed over the deceased grandfather's body. The sins collected in all parts of the food and drink festered conjointly and passed into the teen. Concentrated together, the sins would overtake the boy and he would become violent and attack those around him. Calder had seen it happen before, many times actually, and took it upon himself to not allow it to occur again. He used a butter knife and he took care of the boy, but he hadn't been able to finish the ritual because of the obvious and ensuing panic. And at that moment, while he entered and motioned for me to step out for a word, I joined him in the hallway, and there were three men in the lobby. A rabbi, a priest, and an imam arrived a few minutes ago, and they were demanded to see William Calder. A rabbi, a priest, and an imam. That's gotta be the start of a joke, right? They all walk into a bar or something, but not a police station. I told Wiley to put them on ice and that this was an active investigation, and unless they were his lawyers, they had zero standing here. I went back in and I joined Calder. He knew that the three men were here, and again urged me to let them in. I didn't believe anything that he said, and I let him know it, but I gave him credit for the creativity. I wanted to know more about the boy, if Calder had known him previously, if there was a grudge or any historical motivation. But Calder didn't, and there wasn't any. He stared back to me, permitting the three men to enter, stating how dangerous it was getting. Was that a threat? Sweat perspired on Calder's forehead, his temples, his neck and scalp. He was shiny with it. He started to blink, repeatedly now, were his eyes changing colors. The whites had gone bloodshot, all within a matter of seconds. He put his now glistening hands on the metal table, his face twitching and his body was trembling. He spoke, now in a deeper, thicker voice. If I didn't let the men in, I would die in here. Calder's eyes were sinking back into his skull, and I saw small wafts of black smoke drifting from his mouth. I couldn't look away. I couldn't move. The door burst open, and I watched as three men had entered, the rabbi, the priest, and the imam. While they stood by the door, watching cowardly, just as the three men got to Calder, I saw his eyes disappear into the back of his head. His mouth opened wide, and thick black smoke billowed out of it, 
pluming like a nuclear explosion, filling the room. Within seconds, I couldn't see anything. I felt the smoke envelop me, seep into my core. There was screaming, pain, and hatred. A festering horde of abominations collected my lungs and chest. Anger boiled inside like I had never felt. And then I heard chanting. Three sets of voices in separate languages that came together forming what sounded like a prayer. They boomed over the screams that I heard in the smoke. Then all of a sudden, the anger and hatred that I felt began to fade away. It was easier to breathe. My vision became more clear. I realized that I had crawled over to the wall beside the door. As the smoke disappeared, I saw the three holy men standing over Calder. He was hunched over in his chair, heaving. The smoke was draining out of the room and up into Calder's nose and mouth. Low groans and coughs emitted from him and the last of it emptied. The men then helped Calder up and carried him to the door. As they walked past me, Calder looked down, locking eyes with me. Images flashed through my mind. They were things that I had done. Falsifying information to get convictions, planting evidence, accepting bribes, beating the crap out of the people that I arrested. Even the man that I had gotten away with killing last year. The one who beat my murder rap because my old partner had messed up the paperwork. And then there was that girl from my rookie year. And there was more, so much more. Somehow I knew Calder saw it all. He leaned down and put something in my hand. I was still in shock and I couldn't move. But I felt it there. And then Calder and the three men were gone. Wildly came in moments later, nervously, like the place was filled with toxic gas. Garcia, the staff sergeant, was behind him. I felt tingling in my fingers and toes again. My joints started to come back to me. Wally and Garcia helped me up and back to my desk. They were talking over me, though I could barely understand them. Apparently, the footage from the interrogation room with Calder came back fuzzy, and the audio was incoherent. My hand was in a fist, but I could feel there there was paper inside of it, balled up now. I opened my palm and flattened the small, rectangular paper that William Calder had given me. It was his business card. A friend of the channel sent this. It's 100% true. Written by Anonymous. Full disclosure up front. I'm an avid reader and writer for No Sleep, Creepypasta, SCP, and a few other outlets, and I have been for several years now. Horror is my bread and butter, and the majority of my free time is dedicated to trying to figure out the best ways to elicit chills, creeps, and nightmares in an attempt to craft a memorable and horrifying story. 
Writing is like breathing for me now, and I can't imagine life without it. If you've spent any amount of time on this channel or others like it, then odds are you've heard one of my stories at one point or another. I'll admit, most of those stories are fiction as I'm sure most of you are well aware of, but this time it's going to be different. The story I'm about to share with you is unlike anything else that I've ever shared because it is real. I know it's cliche and not everyone will believe that, but truth be told, I'm not even really posting this to entertain anyone. I'm genuinely worried, and I could really use some advice. I won't give the name or link to my primary account because I don't want this associated with it in any way. There are people in real life who know me by that account, and I don't really want them to hear this, as this may strike a little too close to home. The names of those involved have been changed, but the events remain the same. The best place I can really think to begin this is when my younger sister passed away in 2015. She was born with a birth defect which left her unable to care for herself for her entire life. People with her diagnosis don't have long lifespans, and she passed away at just the age of 17 from pneumonia complications. This event was devastating for my family. We always knew that it would come one day, but you can never really be truly prepared to say goodbye. My parents separated not long after. My own depression struck harder than ever before, morphing into outright nihilism but I think my brother Jake might have had it the worst. He suffered from sleep paralysis for much of his life, but after our sister passed, things really ramped up. He's described his experiences to me in a horrific detail multiple times. One event consisted of a large blob of black jelly which jiggled and pulsated around his room as he lay in bed unable to move a muscle. It was almost comical in a way, but he clearly didn't think so. Another time, he recalls watching a long, slender, humanoid creature with a split face crawl on the walls above and around him. He's also spoken of a little girl that will sometimes come and run around his bed and giggle. He says that she appears harmless, and sometimes he wonders whether she is an avatar of Artis's sister. He said that he's never seen her face, as it's always covered by a flowing head of dark brown hair, the same tint as Artis's to sisters. There is one that he fears the most, though, one that has visited him on multiple occasions. He calls it the Lurker. The Lurker does exactly what its name suggests. It lurks, usually out in the hallway or in his bedroom closet. He's never gotten a good look at its features and always describes it only as a human-shaped shadow. He's described it to me as feeling like he's being endlessly stalked by a tiger. Like somehow he knows the lurker could attack him at any moment, but for whatever reason, it chooses not to do so. It's never approached him or caused him any harm. It just watches and waits. I've tried my best to approach this from a rational perspective. I suppose you could classify me as the stereotypical, skeptical, ignoramus in a horror movie who tries to rationalize strange events with reason, 
only to realize too late what is actually going on, as he's being disemboweled by Jason Voorhees. That's the thing though, that's how it is in movies and books. The rules of writing don't really apply in the real world, and if you ask me, I would say reality itself is not well written. There isn't always a satisfying character arc in real life, nor a stunning plot twist or any of the other thematic elements that comprise a great story. Sometimes bad stuff just happens, and there's no real rhyme or reason to it. I've spoken with Jake about his experiences on multiple occasions, as I find them equal parts fascinating as I do terrifying. I've always been interested in the human mind and the subconscious in particular. I thought maybe incidents of sleep paralysis and reports of supernatural phenomena are really just repressed traumatic memories of finding other outlets. I'm sure that's the case in some instances, but I don't think everything can be explained so easily. I've done my best to assure Jake that nothing out of the ordinary is happening to him. I've offered theories that perhaps his incidents are stemming from internalized anxieties and deep-set traumas. He seemed to believe it for a while, but then something truly horrifying had happened. It was probably sometime past midnight when I heard my phone begin to ring. I woke up from my deep sleep and cursed the unknown caller as I reached for my phone. Between my fuzzy, sleep-laden eyes... I managed to make out a single word on my buzzing phone. Natasha. It was Jake's girlfriend at the time. Needless to say, it was rather odd that she was calling me in the middle of the night. Hello? Natasha was frantic, spitting words out on the other end of the line faster than my delirious mind could comprehend them. Tears dripped from every word, and terror resonated from her voice. Natasha, slow down. I can't understand you. I finally spoke. She took a deep, quivering breath and managed to mutter a sentence which made my blood drop to arctic levels. Jake's on his way to the hospital. I lurched up in bed and asked her to explain what had happened. I'll try to summarize what she said as best as I can. Natasha and Jake lived in an apartment together at the time. She said that they were watching a movie in bed together, when all of a sudden Jake just started humming. Natasha thought that he was doing it just to annoy her and after a few seconds, she lifted her head from his chest and pinched him on the side. He didn't stop. She told him to quit it but Jake just kept humming. Natasha said that it sounded like the melody to a song, but she didn't know which one. Still thinking he was messing with her, she tried to push and get him to stop, but he didn't. He wouldn't react at all. She shook him and basically yelled at him to stop humming, but he wouldn't. She started to get really scared then, because nothing she did was able to wake him up. She rightfully panicked and called a 911, and an ambulance showed up soon after. He had since stopped humming, but remained unresponsive. By this point in her explanation, I was already searching Expedia to try and find an immediate flight out to be there. Natasha then said that the EMTs performed a sternum rub on Jake before loading him up in the ambulance. For those who don't know, a sternum rub is a common practice used by paramedics to try to rouse a person who doesn't respond to verbal stimuli. 
They basically use their knuckles to apply pressure on the center of the chest. It's meant to be very uncomfortable and elicit pain, but it wasn't enough to wake up Jake. By this point, Natasha was in the ER room with several doctors and nurses and the still unconscious Jake. They had begun performing more intrusive tests to try and wake him up. They thought that he had gone into cardiac arrest, but all the tests that they ran came back negative. They inserted a catheter and even performed a spinal tap on him. From what I can understand, a spinal tap can be incredibly painful on an unconscious person. Normally, the procedure is done when the person is awake, but during sleep, the muscles are relaxed which can cause more pain. I could be wrong about all that, so feel free to correct me in the comments if any medical professionals are reading this. But either way, neither the catheter nor the spinal tap was enough to wake up Jake. I've never felt so helpless in all my life, and I could do nothing but listen from the other end of the phone a thousand miles away. Thankfully, my dad lived near Jake at the time and he arrived at the hospital not long after they did. The medical staff continued to swarm in to try and determine what was happening to Jake, but every test they ran came back negative. His vitals were stable, and system devoid of any sort of drugs that were screened for. They either gave him a CAT scan or an MRI, but I honestly can't remember which one it was. And that's when they actually found something unusual. His frontal lobe and pineal gland were lighting up like crazy. Natasha said that one of the doctors even described it as glowing like a Christmas tree. Jake was still unconscious and my mother, who also lived very far from them, had been informed on what was happening by that point. My parents were not on good terms at the time, and in a way had become polar opposites. After my sister had passed, my mother had doubled down on her religious faith, whereas my father had abandoned it entirely. Jake apparently had started humming again, and spoke several words at random. Destroy, tree, macaroni, and go away, being among them. My mom and dad put aside their post-marital discord then, in favor of trying to help their son. My mom then suggested something which my dad outright refused at first. She suggested praying. I know there are many out there who would scoff at this idea as well, and honestly, if I had been there that night, I might have too. A medical emergency like that may seem counterintuitive to prayers, but by that point, the options were running thin. Natasha was a very superstitious girl as well, and she had begun to worry that Jake was being attacked by some demonic entity after the doctors ruled pretty much everything else out. Reluctantly, my father finally agreed and put his hand on my brother's forehead. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, I command you to leave my son alone. He all but screamed the words through tears. Silence then befell the room and Jake fell still. He took a deep breath and his eyes then opened. I could hear the sense of relief in the room from the other end of the phone as Jake glanced around the room in utter confusion. I gotta pee so bad. That was the first thing he said upon waking up, to the laughter and relief of many who were present. He told me later that he's never had to pee so bad in his life 
and Jake was obviously confused as to why he was in the hospital. After talking with him afterwards, he says that he remembers going to bed that night and nothing else. He doesn't remember any dreams or any of the tests or anything else that transpired while he was unconscious. Doctors had no idea how to explain what happened and simply classified it as an unexplained sleep anomaly. Apparently, one of the nurses attending to Jake had burst into tears after my dad spoke his command. She didn't say anything and just excused herself from the room, clutching her cross necklace tightly in her hand. No one was more bewildered than my dad, however, and to this day, he doesn't know what he witnessed that night. Now to any atheists and agnostics reading this, please don't write me off as someone trying to simply convert others into a particular way of thinking via the illustration of satanic powers or something like that. Truth be told, I have no idea how to explain what happened that night either. I've always wondered whether things like exorcisms and demonic forces are truly legit. I thought perhaps those words of power used by my dad that night were more significant on a cognitive level than they were as spiritual. Like maybe the words were recognized by Jake's auditory subconscious and used to sort of trigger him into waking up. Like I said earlier, I try to maintain a healthy dose of skepticism while leaving all possibilities open, and I hope neither side of the religious debate scorns me too greatly for it. I just want answers. Jake has never had another incident quite like that night. He's had periodic episodes of sleep paralysis, but thankfully, nothing as extreme as that night. He has a regiment that he sticks to now, like avoiding sleeping on his back, leaving a nightlight or his TV on, and avoiding using sleeping pills which have greatly reduced his sleep paralysis episodes. About a year after this all happened, Jake and Natasha decided to move out to where I live, after some relentless persuasion on my part. They moved into the house with myself and my two good friends, and we've been living together ever since. I think it's necessary to explain a bit about Natasha at this point. She was quite high-strung, controlling and jealous, with traits that may even be considered emotionally abusive. I wouldn't admit this to Jake, but I never really liked her that much, and I'm not the only one to share this opinion. Female friends of mine have confided that they weren't huge fans of her either. Honestly, I thought living with her was going to be a nightmare, but didn't really care because I wanted my brother out here. She actually surprised me, though, and they fit into our household quite nicely. All five of us got along well, and it was actually a pretty natural transition. They lived with us for months, and things were pretty good. One night, I was just settling in for bed watching Trailer Park Boys for like the thousandth time. When someone knocked on my door, I told them to come in, and Natasha opened the door a moment later. I could tell by the look on her face and her fidgeting hands that she was nervous. Hey, she said. Hey, is everything okay? I asked. She fumbled with her phone for a moment and managed to spit the words out. Can you come look at Jake? He's humming. My heart immediately dropped in my chest and I leapt up to go to the room. Jake was in bed, humming quietly. Like Natasha had said before, it sounded like the melody to a song. 
Jake is an aspiring musician, so he's always writing music. And I thought maybe that was him dreaming of a new one because I didn't recognize the melody either. My mind immediately shot back to the night when he went to the hospital, but this time I could do something about it. I went over to him and shook his shoulder, telling him to wake up. My soul breathed a sigh of relief as he stirred awake a moment later. What? What's up? He asked, groggily. Not wanting to worry him, I decided to improvise an answer. Hey, you were snoring really loud. You feel sick? I asked. Uh, no, I'm fine, he replied. I gave him one of my breathe rites because I thought maybe his nostril was partially restricted at night. I'd been told by several annoyed ex-girlfriends that I smelled like a wild hog trying to suck a tennis ball through a garden hose, and those things always helped me, so I thought maybe they would help him. He went back to sleep and Natasha and I kept an eye on for him for a while. After being confident that the humming was gone, I eventually returned back to my room. The next morning, Jake left for work early. I had the day off that day and was just sipping my morning coffee when Natasha came downstairs. We greeted each other as usual and she began making herself food in the kitchen as I scrolled Reddit and YouTube. After lingering in silence for a couple minutes, she finally told me something disturbing. Jake and her shared the master bedroom and they had a small crucifix hanging on the wall. Apparently, when Natasha woke up that morning, she found the crucifix flipped upside down. It was like a cliche straight out of a horror movie, but it was quite unnerving to hear. To be completely honest, though, I didn't know if I believed her. Once again, I tried using logic to say that maybe the crucifix had swiveled on the nail, and its weight made it flip upside down. Natasha did have a way of exaggerating things. I don't think she meant to lie necessarily, but she did spice up stories to emphasize whatever she was trying to convey. I mean, lots of people do it after all, but either way, Natasha was clearly shaken up by it. It's probably necessary at this point to talk a bit about our lovely neighbor to the west. She's a woman probably in her late 50s, lives alone with her cats, and has been nothing but a pain in the butt since we moved in. Everyone in the neighborhood knows her, and no one likes her as far as I can tell. We've had multiple confrontations with her by this point, and none of them friendly. She's yelled profanities at us, called the police on us at least half a dozen times, and has just generally been an awful neighbor. She also has a rather annoying habit of leaving her trash can out on the road, at all times so that one of us has to either park elsewhere, or exit our vehicle to move her trash can out of the way. We do our best to avoid engaging with her in any way, and it only seems to encourage her spiteful efforts. One thing that I've always found odd is her unusual manner of insults that she's hurled at us. She, of course, has accused us of being drug dealers and users, among other baseless accusations. But one day, she accosted me with a unique insult after I had the nerve to unload groceries from my car. You are all devil worshippers. I just ignored her and literally didn't speak a word back, but I found her insult rather bizarre. Just to clarify, we are not in fact devil worshippers and I promise 
There's no plot twist coming at the end about that being the case. I found that insult oddly specific though. Like, who insults someone like that? Unless maybe she has a guilty conscience. It sort of reminded me about how you would hear those stories sometimes of a staunch evangelical pastor leading a crusade against narcotics. Only for it to come out later that the same pastor has been caught smoking crack outside of 7-Eleven. It's the age-old tactic of accusing others of that which you yourself are guilty of. I don't know whether that woman, who we have nicknamed Karen, has or had anything to do with what's been happening, and honestly, I'll probably never know. On her best days, she wouldn't sit to talk with me about any of this, and I have all but abandoned the notion. I have sometimes entertained the notion, however, as ridiculous as it may seem to some, of whether she may have put some sort of hex on us. Ever since we bought the house in 2017, I've had this odd feeling. I've attributed it mostly to stress of a mortgage and work, but I've always felt as though there is some shadow lingering around me. I'm not the only one to have that feeling either, as my roommates have confessed to similar feelings. One of my roommates, a longtime friend of mine, who I'll call Sean, told me that he had been suffering with nightmares periodically since we had moved in. He hasn't gone into much detail about them, but he has clearly been disturbed by them. He actually stayed with his parents for about a month at one point, because the nightmares had gotten so bad. As for me, I've been struggling as of late. As we all know by now, in 2020, it was a crap year, but 2019 was probably even worse for me. It might even be the worst year of my life. In April of that year, I was at work when a sudden pressure began to build up on my chest. I thought it was just a muscle ache, but then it grew and a terrible sense of dread descended upon me. My chest was throbbing, hands trembling and mind racing. It felt like the world was just closing in around me, and I was certain that I was about to die. I didn't know what was happening, and after trying to walk it off for nearly an hour... And being scolded by my supervisor, I finally asked them to call 911. I'm thankful they did so with great urgency, and my coworker even offered to drive me to the ER. I took him up on the offer, but we only got like half a mile down the road before I asked him to pull over so I could pace around. That was the only thing that seemed to bring some relief. As we waited for the ambulance, I called my parents and brother to tell them what was happening and that I loved them. The ambulance arrived soon after and took me to the hospital. I thought that I was having a heart attack, but thankfully it was confirmed by doctors to only be a panic attack. I say only because these events are not and cannot be fatal, but to anyone who deals with these things... Please know that I do not in any way mean to diminish how difficult or terrifying they are to cope with. Nothing has been the same since that day. I took off like two weeks from work because I just felt utterly consumed by panic after the event. I thought that I was going insane or stricken by a deadly disease of some kind. Every little sensation in my body from my headache to the urge to crap suddenly became an indication to me that something was very wrong with me. It was like I had suddenly forgotten how to live, and every minuscule sensation of my body became a threat. 
I spent thousands of dollars in medical expenses that year and made a total of 13 trips to the doctor and 3 to the ER. I had EKGs, blood work, ultrasounds, x-rays, MRIs, and pretty much every other medical test that there is. Luckily, things have all come back as normal, but it hasn't relinquished the panic. Eventually, they diagnosed me with an anxiety condition known as a panic disorder. I also lost my job because of all of this, and began to really struggle financially, which of course only made the anxiety and depression worse. This diagnosis is hell, and I wouldn't wish it upon my worst enemy. Luckily, I've made some definite improvements lately, thanks in large part to the regiment of antidepressants that I began in October, coupled with CBT and other coping mechanisms. That wasn't the only reason why 2019 was so terrible, however. A good friend of mine, Chris, who I have known for many years, had left for the military some time ago. 2019 was his discharge year, and he seemed eager to get out. I communicated with him occasionally in the months leading up to his release, and I couldn't wait to see him again. August finally rolled around, and he made the long drive back from the eastern United States to our house on the west coast of the U.S. We of course told him that he could live with us as we had a spare bedroom which seemed like the perfect fit. He finally arrived and he was the same old friend he had been before he left. We had a party with all of our friends and everyone was thrilled that he was back. In the following weeks, he moved into our house and we all got along great. He actually took it upon himself to reseed the grass in our front yard and do other maintenance on the house. He was always like that and determined with an iron code that seemed to compel him to think of others before himself. He seemed to be living large. He started dating an old friend of ours, went out skydiving and just seemed to be absolutely thrilled to be home. He was working part-time and expressed interest in enlisting in these special forces and another branch of the military. He was Jack too. He had clearly been hitting the gym hard for some time. He seemed like he was in the best physical shape of his life but looks can be cruelly deceiving. He was drinking quite a lot, but not to the point where it really interfered with his daily activities. We didn't think that it was an issue, as our group has always binge drank like that. I remember one day he approached me with a really odd interaction. He had an impressive collection of pocket knives, machetes, and swords that he had been gathering for years. I was playing Smash Bros. Ultimate on the couch when he came and dropped, like, five pocket knives on the couch beside me. I shot him a confused look, and he just smiled. Do you want these? He asked. My confusion only mounted. You don't? I asked, slightly bewildered. I've got so many already. I took a break from the game and inspected the knives. They were really nice, and I imagine they costed quite a bit. I found it odd that he had apparently decided to just give them to me out of the blue like that. You really don't want them, I asked again, and he again assured me that he just had too many, and I graciously accepted his gift, thinking little else of it. Things went on as usual, with all of us working and doing the usual, and Chris struggled to find a full-time employment, but did work part-time with a family friend of ours doing landscaping. We all had varying schedules, 
and during the work week, we didn't tend to see a whole lot of each other. Nathan, the other friend in our house who had been there since the beginning, worked early mornings and usually left at around 4 a.m. Sean had the closest thing to a 9 to 5, and generally left the house at around 7. I worked swing and didn't start till 3 p.m., and my brother Jake worked nights beginning at 10 p.m. Natasha was a barista, so her schedule was sort of all over the place and it changed regularly. One night on my off day, I was at home once again playing Smash in the living room. Sean was in the other room by the kitchen watching TV, and Chris was upstairs in his room. We were all just doing our thing, when there was suddenly a popping sound that echoed from the house. It sounded like somebody had dropped a beer bottle onto a hardwood floor or something. I asked Sean if he had done it, but he hadn't. Once again, none of us thought much of it. I went to the doctor the next day to deal with all my imaginary ailments, and when I returned home, I found something that caught my eye. Chris's jeep hadn't moved from the night before. Once again, I just thought that he hadn't bothered leaving the house for whatever reason. Maybe he was sick or just chilling out. I went to bed at around 11 that night and saw something else which increased the anxiety. His bedroom light was still on. Me and Jake were generally the night owls of the house and everyone else tended to go to sleep before us due to our schedules. I found it kind of odd that Chris was still awake. I thought about knocking on his door but I ended up not doing so. I felt really nervous going to bed that night, but since I almost always felt nervous, I just attributed it to the anxiety. The next morning as I sauntered out of my room, something familiar and unsettling caught my eye. Chris's bedroom light was still on, and his door still shut. I felt my heart sink in my chest, but I tried talking myself down and doing CBT to calm myself. By the way, the acronym CBT in this context is Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, and not something else which cultured degenerate individuals may misconstrue. Mornings always seem to elicit a lot of anxiety with me, and so, once again, this day wasn't really anything different in that regard. I began brewing coffee and Sean emerged from his room shortly after. He and I joked and talked as we did on pretty much every morning. The thought arose to go check on Chris and I was about to ask Sean to go with me. But I chickened out and Sean left for work shortly after. For the next hour or so, I was on the brink of panic and tried desperately to quell the mounting storm in my chest. I paced around the ground floor endlessly, hoping and praying that I would hear Chris's footsteps upstairs. I even thought that I did at one point but clearly that was just my imagination. A car rolled into the driveway a bit later. The front door then opened and in stepped Jake, who had just gotten off work. He and I greeted each other with our routine insults and banter, and just talked as usual. He was about to head up to bed when I finally forced the question from my throat. Hey, have you seen Chris lately? I asked. Jake paused and turned on the stairs as he thought. No, not since Monday. Why? he asked. I then nervously explained how I hadn't seen him in a while either. He suggested that we go check on him, as the worst that we thought could happen was him waking up and being annoyed. 
I've never been so wrong in my life. We crept up the stairs towards his room and I placed a gentle knock on his door. I called his name but there was no response. My heart felt like it was about to spring right out of my chest as I slowly pushed the door open. I saw him immediately seated in his chair by the desk in the corner. For a brief millisecond I felt relief, seeing him sleeping in his chair. But he wasn't sleeping. His head was slumped back against the wall, and eyes wide open staring upwards. It all struck me in an instant. I screamed his name and rushed towards him, knowing immediately that it was futile, but still pressing my finger to his neck and praying that I would feel Paul's. His skin was cold and rigid, feeling more like rubber than it did skin. There was a wound on his head, and a spackling of blood on the wall. His skin was pale and I knew right away that it was far too late. The following minutes consist of mostly a blur. I called 911 and then our two roommates and I scarfed down a couple at a van to try and contain the typhoon raging in my chest. I was crying and whimpering as I made my way back upstairs. Jake was just slumped against the opposing wall directly outside Chris's room, staring blankly at the macabre sight like his mind didn't know how to process what it was witnessing. There was this haunting, distant gaze in his eyes that... I don't think I can ever forget. I just leaned down and hugged him, as he screamed and cursed at the top of his lungs, anger mixing with sorrow as he questioned why Chris would do something like that. The paramedics arrived a few minutes later, and I did my best to whimper out what we found. They went up to the room and grimly confirmed what we already knew. Chris was gone. Our two roommates arrived a few minutes later, followed soon after by Chris's family. That day was a nightmare, a living, visceral nightmare that refused to end. Hugs were exchanged, tears were shed, and worlds were changed forever. Chris had ended his own life. Apparently, the pistol he used was resting right in his lap, but in the shocking frenzy, I hadn't even noticed it. Sean and I later talked about the popping noise that we had heard two days previous. We had been around guns all of our lives and needless to say, we know what a gunshot sounds like, but that didn't sound like one. I guess it had to have been muffled by something. Everyone was devastated and even now I can still hardly believe it actually happened. Part of me feels like I'm just writing another story now as I've done dozens of times before, and a larger part of me wishes desperately that was the case, but it isn't. We all love horror, I mean, that's why we all read and listen to these stories, right? The cold chills that creep down your spine, and the goosebumps that line your skin, as you read or listen, are addictive feelings. It's a dark world, and we are the ones who seek the shadows. The horror that I witnessed that day is unlike anything that I've ever felt. I sincerely hope that you, whoever you are that is reading this, never have to see something like I saw that day. The fictitious stories that we spend hours crafting and refining will never amount to that which can occur in real life. I would like to say that all of this is behind us now and that things are all peachy keen nowadays, but that isn't true. Several members of my friend group have expressed the idea that they believe we are cursed or of some variation of that. 
and we had a cat and a dog in our house, and I would often catch them staring at nothing while on full alert. People seemed uncomfortable in our house after Chris's passing. Obviously, everybody knew that was where he had done it, and that alone is enough to warrant anxiety, but it seemed to be more than that. We had a barbecue months later, and all of our friends came over with their kids. One of the young girls ended up going upstairs and into Jake and Natasha's room. No one knows what exactly happened, but at some point her mom realized that she was missing. We found her soon after in Jake and Natasha's walk-in closet. She was crying and looked absolutely terrified when they found her. She ran out and jumped into her dad's arms and he comforted her. He asked her what had happened, but she refused to speak. He later told me that she later told him that she was hiding from the tall, dark man. Apparently, the kids had been playing hide-and-seek when she saw a tall, dark man like a shadow that crawled up from under Jake's bed and chased her into the closet. Now, it could just be an exaggerated story from the mind of a scared child, but according to her parents, she's never done anything like that before. A few months after Chris had passed... My roommate Nathan and I had a worrying experience one night too. I was downstairs cooking nachos when suddenly, a shrill, ear-piercing shriek of terror reverberated in the night. At first, I thought it was Nathan watching a horror movie upstairs, but a second later he came scampering down the stairs. Did you hear that? He asked, eyes wide as he clutched his pistol. We convened for a moment and realized these screams sounded like... It had come from Karen's house next door. We turned off all the lights and grabbed our guns to hunker down. We were worried that someone had broken into our house. We waited around in the silent dark for several minutes, but never heard anything beyond that initial scream. As the minutes passed, we finally decided to call the police and have them do a welfare check. I did just that, and the police arrived several minutes later as we waited. Nathan was at the front door, and I was at the back, looking over the fence into her yard. I heard them knocking on her door and the subsequent sounds of them speaking, but I was too far to make out what was said. After only about a minute, I saw the cops walking away and heard Karen shut her door behind them. Nathan and I breathed a sigh of relief, but before we could reconvene... I heard her sliding glass door open on the other side of the fence. Screw you, you'll never take me. She just screamed it out into the night. Nathan and I immediately busted out laughing, now convinced that nothing was actually amiss. Nathan made a joke about her being angry at her cats and we just laughed. The vindicative behavior of this woman after we had the nerve to check and make sure that she was safe was something that we honestly should have expected by that point, based on the way she's always treated us. It was a weird phrase that she had used, though, and at the time, I didn't understand what she meant. I don't know if it's related, but that night, I had probably the worst nightmare of my entire life. As dreams often have a way of doing, the memory seems to have mostly disintegrated from my mind now. I just remember suffering and horrific visions of violence to loved ones and other unspeakably horrible things. I woke up utterly frantic, drenched in sweat and gasping for breath. I felt like someone had been trying to strangle me in my sleep, and my windpipe seemed partially restricted.
As I stumbled my way into the bathroom trying to calm myself down, I flicked on the lights and proceeded to sear my eyeballs in their sockets. My eyes took a while to acclimate to the light, and once they had, I saw something. I'm still not 100% on this, and after all, I was half awake and partially blind while suffering a panic attack. But I swear that I saw a face looking back at me from outside at the bathroom window. A horrible face. Gaunt and humanoid, but ambiguous as though concealed in shadow. The sudden sight of it caused me to fall back into the door. I rubbed my eyes furiously, and once they finally cleared, I saw nothing. Nothing but an empty window and the darkness beyond. I don't know what that thing was or whether it was even there. I have no history of hallucinations, but I suppose the sudden awakening and lethargy may have done something. I swear that I saw it, though, and no matter how I've tried to rationalize it, it doesn't feel right. At certain other points, I've seen it too, or at least thought I did. It's always out of the corner of my eye or some obscured position off in the distance. That's always the problem with these things. They're always vague and never anything irrefutable. Jade told me a few concerning things lately as well. He works a graveyard at a local deli and a few nights ago, he was in the freezer when he was suddenly struck by a feeling of impending doom. He said he felt as though every one of his primal senses were screaming at him to leave immediately, but he didn't understand why. He turned to exit the freezer when he saw the door slowly creep shut and between the cracks, he saw a dark silhouette for a split second. A dark silhouette of something that he recognized. The Lurker. Up to now, this thing has been confined only to his nightmares and this was the first time that he had seen it in the waking world. He described it pretty much exactly as he had before, a human-shaped shadow that lurks, but this time it appeared to intentionally try to harm him, at least if he saw what he thought he did. The freezer door at his work is specifically designed to prevent closing automatically. It also has a feature to prevent from locking when someone is inside. It's good that they had that too, and Jake was able to get out without an issue aside from being rather unnerved. He admitted to me recently that he's wondered whether he could be schizophrenic, and that thought terrifies me, but another one weighs almost as heavy. Even if he does have some sort of mental condition, that doesn't explain how the door shut behind him like that, or how he and I both seem to see similar things. Thankfully, this seems to be about it for now. As of late, neither I nor Jake nor anyone else has had any weird experiences. As you can imagine, all these worrying things weighed heavy on us for a while. Since this is real life and not a horror movie. And we sold the house and moved out at the end of 2022. And thankfully, everyone seems to be doing better now. But the haunting memories still remain. And that's about where we're at now. The writer in me almost hates to leave things off like this. Every story that I write has to have a conclusion or an explanation, or at the very least enough pieces for the reader to surmise the truth. But this post doesn't have that. We don't always get resolutions in real life, and that fact troubles me a lot. A lot of what we've experienced could be pinned on mental health, but can all of it? 
If spirits exist, then how do we draw the line between their influence and that of our own subconscious inner workings? Can an episode of Psychosis explain why a freezer door is shut on its own like that? Can schizophrenia explain why an invocation of Jesus Christ awoke my brother when all other medical options had failed? I find it interesting that people often refer to mental health issues as demons. And now I wonder whether there is a much more literal interpretation of that. And since we moved, a few of my friends have told me in confidence that they could sense an ominous aura whenever they were at our house. It breaks my heart to be honest, as I've always hoped my home would be a welcoming place of comfort for everyone, but clearly that was no longer an option. If anyone out there has ever experienced anything like this or has any theories, then please feel free to share them. And for those of you out there who suffer with depression and suicidal thoughts, I am begging you with all that I am, please don't do it, no matter whether you believe it or not. Since Chris has passed, I have seen people come to share their condolences that I didn't even know knew him. My Facebook inbox was overwhelmed by people showing their support and wishing me well. Please don't do it to yourself. You cannot imagine what you do for those you leave behind. The wounds that never heal, and you will never be forgotten. If anyone has any advice, then I would greatly appreciate hearing it. And if anything more happens, then I will update everyone. Here's to hoping that doesn't happen, though. I just want us all to be okay again. You've made it to the end of this week's podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. I would also like to give a big shout out to this week's sponsor, HelloFresh. Go to HelloFresh.com slash MrCreep16 and use code MrCreep16 for up to 16 free meals and 3 free gifts. I'm not sure about where you guys are, but over here we're starting to get some occasional spring weather, which I love. Nothing puts me in the mood for some spooky stories like a quiet rainy day. I hope you guys stay safe and have a wonderful morning, day or night, wherever you may be in the world. And as always, stay creepy.